Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. And welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It is episode 264 of the podcast. It is our sixth read of the book, Game of Thrones, in the A Song of Ice and Fire series. This week, it's the chapters Eddard 4, Tyrion 3, Arya 2, and Daenerys 3. My name is Matt Murdock, and I am from PodcastWinterfell.com. I could just say yada yada here, but instead I will tell you that's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. It is also where you will find... All kinds of contact links, social media links, and podcatcher links. And if you could, please take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use. But I have a couple of people to thank this week for leaving their reviews. Stormy Fan in the U.S. iTunes store and Dollarus Ed T. in the Stitcher store. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave a review for the podcast. Do also want to just let you know that after this week, there will be kind of a two-week hiatus in the podcast as far as this Game of Thrones read goes. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be podcasts. I've pre-recorded one fan feedback podcast for theory stuff, and we will also have a uh, another Grand Northern Conspiracy Theory podcast coming up for you during the two weeks that I can't do the read, but I'm just unable to record at a time that everybody can get together for the read over the next two weeks myself because of my own personal schedule. Um, so if you're new to these books, then you'll probably want to avoid the next two weeks after this one. But if you are not new to these books, if you've read them all, then I hope that you enjoy the theory cast stuff that we talk about over the next two weeks. Um, speaking of being new to the series, uh, one of the ideas that we have with this Game of Thrones read is to entice people who have seen the whole television show to get into the books if they haven't yet. Uh, so the first part of our discussion will be spoiler-free for people who have not read all of the books, but not spoiler-free uh, for people who have only watched part of the television show. Make sure you're caught up with the television show so that we can relate any of the material that is relatable to the television show during our kind of reread of this Game of Thrones. And then if you haven't read any of the books beyond the one that you're reading here, then you can turn the podcast off as the end music comes on and we'll have a spoiler discussion uh, for those of you who have read all of the books, because there are places where the books and the TV show differ, of course. That's enough about the podcast. It's time to welcome in our panel this week. First of all, we have returning with us once again, Stephanie. Welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you along. And once again, we have joining us uh, our regular panelist here, Kelly. Welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you, Matt. All right. Uh, everybody's thanking me. For, and it's just they're thanking me because I, I provide a recording. Uh, that's pretty much it. Anyway, let's get into talking about these books, uh, or this book and these chapters. Eddard 4 to begin. Ned arrives at the Red Keep ahead of the king, attends a small council meeting where he learns of the crown's debt and recalls part of 
the last part of his journey to King's Landing. And then Littlefinger takes him to Catelyn, where the dagger and plans are discussed. There's a general overview of the chapter. Uh, Kelly, why don't we start with you this week? What would you like to talk about in terms of Eddard Four first off? Yeah, this, this chapter has kind of another set of scenes that made you feel like you were kind of dropped into the second or third book in a series because there's so much of the backstory that you get between uh, um, Littlefinger and Ned and, and the kind of imagery that he pulls up when he talks about how Renly is like a younger Robert and it's kind of like we're a generation behind where this story started. So, and it's just like the richness of the story. And I really um, just remember when I first read this felt like I was, had missed something. And I'm like, no, you're only on the 20th chapter. You didn't miss a book or something. You, you it's just, there's just that much and that much to rereading it too. Um, we got to meet Pythel. That was a treat, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, he was, he was, um, he was in this, some, you know, the first, uh, we haven't seen any of the, he's like the last um, council member we see. We, um, we don't get to see Stanis, I don't think, until like the next book or something. But yeah, he, uh, so he's like, you know, the last council member. That we have yet to meet. So it's kind of this nice way we got to meet each of these council, small council members on their own outside of this chamber. So that's, that kind of eased us into it a little bit. But yeah, so, so he was the only one we got to really pay attention to here. That it was um, uh, very different than I think you know you remember him from either the show or a first read. <laughs> Here you can tell that he's he's kind of playing this part, and uh, it was really coincided with how he played it on the show too. So. Uh, just this decrepit old man, and he can't. Oh, before he falls asleep, let's finish up what we're doing. And, and you know, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so tough. Um, it, it was noteworthy that you know he has a longer chain of medals than um, Lewin, um, and all of the different ones, and how like maybe even more elaborate they are because here and there, there's ruby, either an emerald or a ruby. Um, Makes it sound a little more ostentatious than Simple Maester. He's kind of got that Pope money. Right. And given what we know about the 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 chains and everything, I, I mean, actually, I don't guess you really know it here all of that well, but knowing it from the television show, uh, I, when I noticed the description of the of of his chain, I, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, well, is he really that accomplished or is some of these just decorative? Because we've, we've kind of gotten a, uh, a small list. I, I know from, uh, from some of the DVD extras in that, that uh, about what kind of disciplines are involved in earning a link of the chain. Um, but what do you think, Stephanie? Is, is some of that stuff just for show? Is it not something well, you that can be truly achieved? That was actually something I was thinking of as well. Um, you know, with especially with the rubies and the jewels he has on his chain, I was thinking, like Kelly mentioned, are those just for fun, or did he do something special to get them, or did he put them on? But then I figured he must be somewhat accomplished because he's the Grand Maester of the realm, um, unless that was some Lannister tomfoolery that paid for him to get there, but... I, I had the same thoughts. I think some of it must be warranted. Do we know how long he's been maester there? Yeah, uh, he's been maester for 40 years. 
uh, Grand Maester. Okay. He makes probably, I think he was a Maester before that. Um, and he became Grand Maester um, under Aegon V, actually. We right, so he's outlasted a few kings, so he must have some merit. I mean, yeah, whether right. that, yeah, but I whether that qualifies him to have so many chains and jewels and ornamentation, that kind of is a mystery as of now. As of now, it certainly is. All <laughs> right, very good. Uh, Stephanie, what do you have on this chapter? Um, I this chapter. As Kelly stated, it gave us, it kind of felt like we were being dropped into the middle of something because we got so much information. We got first, you know, kind of an introduction to this small council and what they do. And in that meeting, we find out the crown is in a crazy amount of debt. And, you know, why did they let this happen? How did this happen? Nobody really is concerned with with that except for um, Eddard, it seems like. They're just like, oh, well, King Robert tells us to do this, and that's what we do. And then on top of all that, Robert wants to have the tourney of the hand, which is just another extravagance. And I think it just shows the disparities between Eddard and Robert, even though, you know, they were friends and grew up together as brothers, but they're so different. And I think that was a, that was a good moment and a good way to show us how different they are. Yeah, and I love also the demonstration, and I think it was brought up in the show as well, but it, just the fact that uh, no matter how good of a hand that John Aaron may have been, it didn't necessarily mean anything because Robert was going to decide what he was going to decide anyway, right? Yep, exactly. And, he didn't, it didn't matter if they were already, you know, $3 million in debt to the Lannisters. He's the king, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I also love how the Iron Bank of Bravos is mentioned in this. Now, that's a reveal that we didn't really get what, until about season three of the television show? It's kind That's of a slow burn. Yeah. Yeah. It was when Tyrion was master of coin and he was looking over Littlefinger's ledgers, I believe, um, or first became master of coin and was looking over Littlefinger's ledgers. Uh, so uh, that was that was very interesting that it's this early on in the series for the books. Um, so it's not really that big of a surprise uh, when other events happen around the Iron Bank of Bravos uh, in the future of the show or the books. Um, here's something I want to ask you, Kelly. Uh, did uh, the whole events of Sansa crying herself to sleep at night and Arya brooding all day, uh, as by Ned's recollection, uh, when you compare that to Bran's dream about, uh, and here it is, quote, he saw Sansa cry herself to sleep at night and he saw Arya watching in silence and holding her secrets hard in her heart. Uh, it just appears to me that the, almost Bran's dream to the letter. Do you think that was to fortify, uh, in addition to the whole thing with Catelyn earlier, uh, just another way to fortify how accurate Bran's dream was? Yeah, it, it really worked to be convincing um, and these things that kind of come to be true to the reader. Um, I think that was supposed to give us faith that these were visions and that they were powerful and um, that there was something to the other things that we saw in those that we don't see in the chapters, so the stuff in a shy and the stuff north of North and north. north, <laughs> north. Things, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. What else have you got, Kelly? Yeah. Um, so we went from the small council meeting, which was, 
I don't <laughs> looking back on it, it seems like why did they rush the small council meeting? Like, what was the the urgent the urgency that he was called to the small council as soon as he got there? He thought it'd be something kind of important, but it was mostly it was just for the party. Tell them that there's going to be attorney. Yeah, that was yeah. really weird. It, it seems much more like a kind of a forced plot device there. Um, but then we went from that to, you know, and it put Littlefinger and uh, it could be that Littlefinger, oh, now that I say it out loud, I just realized that it could have been Littlefinger insisting to see Ned as soon as he gets to the city so that they, he can take him to Catelyn. <laughs> right. That's what I was thinking and, after you said that as well. See, <laughs> yeah. we'll work it out together, guys. <laughs> there you go. We can all work it out as we go along. Um, so, so, yeah, he takes um, Ned down this you know, crazy secret path, and he's being super irreverent to him the whole way, just needling him, for, you know, and it's really telling, I think, of Littlefinger's ego and kind of like this, ha-ha, I'm smarter than you, I can outwit you, I'm so clever, you know, projection that he's kind of putting out there that I don't, it doesn't seem like this is something that he's, um, like at the end of the chapter, he tells Kat that he's been, um, fashioning this, this image in King's Landing. He doesn't want them to know that he's gone soft. And he's, it kind of seems like that's more the honest little finger. Like that's the true little finger and any sentiments that he actually has would be um, the rare little finger. Um, he's just so harsh to Ned. Did you guys, I don't want to ask both of you now, because what did you guys think of little fingers immediately? Go ahead, Steph. Well, I was going to say, I thought it was pretty harsh when Eddard's like, where are you taking me? He's like, oh, I'm going to go, like, hang you and string you up in the dungeon. It's just like, really? Yeah. Yeah, like, is he trying to be funny? Or is he... Yeah. Is he, how can you think that that would be taken any other way but insulting? Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. And he kind of made those little jabs the whole, as Kelly said, the whole entire time. Um, I don't know. Littlefinger in the show in the books, he's just so shifty and slimy. I never know what to think or whose side he's on or what he's doing. <laughs> and this kind of even just proved that even more with all his little side comments and then saying that he's always going to be loyal to Cat and is that true? And uh, it's just... I'd like yeah. a Littlefinger POV chapter, please. <laughs> <laughs> Don't would we... clarify a lot, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I actually read that line about uh, that the way he was physically threatening Ned as being uh, sarcastic because if he couldn't handle yeah. Brandon, he couldn't handle Ned. Um, but it, it's it's the fact I love the fact that George doesn't really offer that Ned picks up any sense of of sarcasm in it, right? Right. So, right. So that makes you as a reader wonder what it's about. I I, I do love that, and it does make you know. Um, I, again, I think it helped to elevate the reveal of the fact that Littlefinger, even though we knew as readers that Littlefinger was already helping Catelyn, or so we thought, um, it's still, from Ned's point of view, uh, when they get to the brothel, then it makes Ned instantly think that he's being, you know, uh, I don't know if it, he thought it was some going to be some kind of instrument of blackmail or something, but it shows his mistrust of Littlefinger, which is what... I think well, us as readers, since we've already by this point kind of glammed on to Ned, uh, whether his POV is always accurate is yet to be 
found out, but we tend to trust what Ned thinks. And so if he's jumping to a conclusion that Littlefinger is bad, uh, that he doesn't like Littlefinger at all, um, then that makes that reveal of the fact that he is actually is helping Catelyn uh, a little more fun by the time we get, you know what, midway through the chapter. It does. And especially if I was trying to put myself back in, like, before I watched the show, before I read the books, if I would have felt the same way about Littlefinger being so shifty, especially from Ned's perspective. And I think I would have. I think I would have gone with Ned on the, you know, mistrust and everything. And then once Catelyn is okay, it's still a little, you know, kind of walking on eggshells there with the trust of Littlefinger. Yeah, you could tell that, like, the way he was needling him in the beginning, even in the um, small council chambers, like, it was because he knew he had information Ned wanted out or would want out of him so he could kind of, um, kind of, I don't know, like, put on this show of, of bravado and even on the way down before he even tells him where he's taking him, yeah, he's uh, just has all of this arrogance and, you know, making fun of Ned and how long it took him to climb down this leg. And we get the... um the scene later with Santa and uh, it's described as terrifying. <laughs> like, yeah. It's really, really difficult. And so you can tell that like, this is something Littlefinger has done a lot and he's actually like using it as an opportunity to belittle Ned for how long it took him to get down there and stuff. And he's all because he has this thing that Ned would want and Ned needs from him. And he's just gloating with it, I guess. A, a little bit of character revenge, perhaps for what we know that Brandon did to him also. I mean, is it is it just him saying, you know, finally uh, the family that took my Catelyn away from me, I get to I get to torture him a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. It's just, Probably, it, and that's yeah. I think how it, the, I feel like that's the only thing that we're supposed to see yet right now is that he's kind of like this spurned lover. Um, is the only thing behind all of his um, resentment of Ned, because otherwise we don't really understand why he's such a jerk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. What else have we got on this chapter, guys? Well, I think, um, as Kelly mentioned last week, that George exercised some brevity here um, when Catelyn was told him the whole story. So instead of retelling the entire story about the killer and the dagger and everything going over it, you know, for how many hundred words, he kind of just said, well, Catelyn told him everything. And I thought that was that was good, especially because we just read about it not long ago. Yeah, I agree. It, it leaves a little ambiguity for like, well, did she tell him, you know, you kind of have to trust the author in, the, in those moments, like to say that she didn't tell him anything that we didn't read ourselves. And the kind of thing right. Aria, like the story Aria told him was the story that we read. So you kind of have to yeah. trust that that's what happened, but it does leave room for ambiguity in, in knowledge. And it is interesting that those were both to Ned, so Ned's always kind of given this, you know, off, you know, off-page summary <laughs> of what's yeah. happening to his family members. <laughs> yeah, very good, Kelly. What else do you have? Kelly. Kelly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like talking to myself on mute. <laughs> oh, that's not so good. <laughs> Has to happen at least like every other episode, I think. Okay, sorry. Um, I was saying, um, we, I was wondering if you guys caught this on your first read. Um, although I think, Stephanie, you said you read the book after you saw the show. I did. After and, the first three okay. seasons, I read them, yeah. I'm the oh, same way, too. So. Oh, I never caught that Renly was gay in the book. 
and I'm sure there's a lot of people that have that same experience. It's very subtle. And this is kind of that first hint that in my rereads, I always pick up on the, um, that George did put in there that I think you can read into and that um, little finger is making comments about the way Renly dresses and then Renly just mm-hmm. takes it um, in stride and, and kind of gives his own little quips back, you know, um, about how his little finger dresses. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know if you can you're right. maybe as you go forward with Renly, pay attention to maybe see if you would have caught it on your first read or yeah. how subtle it was. I, I don't think I caught it on the first read at all because I, you know, it just seemed uh, after I'd seen the television show, uh, it was demonstrated clearly. So uh, maybe I saw it as confirmation of it, but I never, I never had to take that mystery. Like many, you know, this book's been out since what ninety five, ninety six. So right. Uh, you know, between it and some references in Clash of Kings, I'm sure astute readers uh, put it together, but I don't know that I would have. Okay. I definitely wouldn't have, except, you know, in hindsight, of course, after watching the show and then reading now, like Kelly said, with the clothes and, you know, how well-dressed he was and everything. That it made me smile. That was a cute little nod, but I think on my original read, I never would have ever picked that up. Yeah, and, and you can see how when I first saw the show, and I'm like, what is this show twist that they're putting in here? This is not how it was. <laughs> All like book ah. reader offended. <laughs> and went back, and my uh, my speech friends were, were sure to calm me down and, and tell me that, no, no, it is there. <laughs> no, it's there. Know. Reread, reread, young one, and, and look harder. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah, uh, but I guess if you don't have that, uh, I do want to ask you guys then, if you um, do you know, like, the way that uh, Varys and Littlefinger discuss, or the way Littlefinger discusses his relationship with Varys, um, it's a little confusing to me, because he seems to hear say that he has Varys' balls in his hand, <laughs> metaphorically. Right. Um, and it seems like they both kind of feel that way about each other, if we can kind of go on what we know about Varys. Um, do you guys understand any of that, that back and forth that these two have, or what does Littlefinger seem to think he has on there? Well, I don't know if if there's anything definitive. I, I think that both of them are very good at, at information, and, and they probably have stuff on each other that would make them appear bad in the council. And so they have kind of the, a uh, perspective um, standoffishness. But I, I think that like Dave and Dan took a lot of little quips like this and really escalated them in the television mm-hmm. show where he had direct confrontations between them. Uh, and, and so I guess I just took this line and just kind of played it off uh, to being one of those clues that Dave and Dan used to just, you know, escalate that a little bit more for dramatic purposes. Yeah, I tend to see Littlefinger and Varys, even in the book with that little quip, um, they're kind of like at a stalemate with each other because they each have so much, as uh, Matt said, probably dirt and secrets, and Littlefinger might know about Varys' little birds, and, you know, every Littlefinger, or Varys probably knows about Littlefinger's brothel and all other whatever else Littlefinger gets into. Um, So I'm sure they're both, like, Matt said, just at a respective, just stalemate, like, watch, you know, keep an eye on your enemy, I guess. 
Yeah, uh, they're both like working towards their own ends and are aware of the scaffolding of each other and know that yes. they're both kind of built on the same foundation. And if they try to topple one, theirs will fall down just as easily. Yeah. I okay. yeah. And then and then like you mentioned before, Kelly, it may have it may just be little fingers bravado acting out here, you know, making him seem to because every every villain likes to be the hero in his own story, right? So yeah. <laughs> uh that's 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 the thing, you know. He can make it. Well, I've got berries by the metaphoric balls, and therefore, you know, you don't have to worry about him. You know, he's just trying to make himself look big in front of Callan. Or yeah, that is not to be discounted. That this is all in front of Callan. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Very good. What else we got on this chapter, guys? Well, I thought it was interesting to note that um, Ned, after Catelyn told the story about how Bran's wolf saved his life and um, how he was reflecting that John said that the pup, the direwolf puppies were meant to have him, and then he was thinking that he killed um, Sansa's lady. And I just thought that was pretty interesting, especially because I love all the direwolf stuff. Um, but it was just interesting that he was kind of having a retrospective, like, Oh, like we weren't gonna, we were gonna kill these dire wolves at first, and then John said that, you know, my kids were meant to have them, and now they ended up saving Bran's life, and but I killed Lady, so now what? I I just thought that was a really interesting and fatherly thoughts to have about his the dire wolves. All right, now let's fast forward to episode nine of Game of Thrones. Do you think Ned? Ned is thinking to himself, uh, as it all hap- as it's all happening, it's like this is the old gods getting back at me for killing a direwolf. No, <laughs> but oh um, come on, let's go crazy. Well, I mean, I don't think it's not. I mean, well, I don't think that's his only thought, but I think right. if the gods had sent these wolves, I mean, that's not a reason for him to be behead for him to be beheaded that he killed Lady. But I mean, it's. You know, if the old gods they get their revenge, I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think he. I don't think this is the last time he has that um, kind of foreboding thought, that kind of ominous consideration about what does this mean. You know, he doesn't really ever have an answer to himself. I don't think, but I, I think it comes back to haunt him a couple times. This becomes like a little motif to him um, on the uh, the curses that you know. This might be one of the things. One of the ways, the, uh, one of the reasons the gods cursed him. Oh. And I mean, I think let's it's pretend, pretend, I mean, oh, go on. I was going to say, I don't think it's too crackpot. <laughs> I don't think it is. And I was going to say, let's pretend like this whole Sansa storyline in season five didn't happen. But if it had to, and she had Lady, that would have been very helpful. Just saying. <laughs> Matt, I know you stopped watching in season five, but. Lady mm-hmm. That's all right. <laughs> no, that's okay. Everything up through season five is definitely on the table for this discussion because we hope that everybody has uh, watched the television show up to then so that we can give it somewhat of a comparative perspective. Um, and you're right. You know, I mean, I saw up to the to the sound of uh, episode the episode six, and uh, definitely, if Lady was still around, um, although would Lady have ever done being the lady that she is? Would she have ever done anything except bared her teeth? Like she did at Ellen Bain. I think she would have, like, I think she would have. Yeah, after seeing her master, or, you know, in such a 
perilous position, I think she would have done more. She would have not been a lady anymore. She would have just gone full dire wolf. <laughs> yeah, I think we did have a discussion last week about the fact yeah. that it feels like the the whether you consider any other connections between the wolves and and uh, their respective humans, um, it does seem like there is this ultimately this kind of protective nature between each wolf and and its human. So definitely, yeah. Yeah, I think she would have evolved as Sansa evolved, and that would have kind of been reflected in both of them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Anything else on this chapter, guys? Uh, the different kind of insights that, you know, where Ned really excels as a commander, and he immediately tells Catelyn to head back to Winterfell and gives her convincing reasons. It's, you know, you've done all you can here. Um, if someone tried to kill Bran, they might try to kill him again go back and protect our sons. And while you're there, I need you to, you know, was it raise 200 bowmen to fortify Moat Kalen and get mm-hmm. the White Harbor, Manderley and White Harbor to strengthen and repair all of his defenses and to watch Theon. So those are his last commands to Catelyn before she leaves, those four things. Um, yeah. And certainly, I, you know, oh, go ahead, Steph. Oh, no, no. Finish your thought. <laughs> Okay, uh, and certainly to the end of Theon, uh, that was sage advice. We certainly know that for certain. Um, I don't guess Lord Manderley or, or Galbert Glover have really been mentioned uh, in the television show, maybe mentioned, but they haven't appeared in the television show to my knowledge. Um, so I would like to talk more about those two particular guys uh, in the spoiler section as well. But definitely as far as Theon goes, um, he seemed to have, to know exactly what was might happen, didn't he? He did. He seemed to have some forethought that, you know, the Starks are, I mean, besides Bran's green scene and everything, he's not really, Eddard's not really known for his forethought and foresight and everything. He kind of, he's loyal and he's very respectable, but he's not the smartest. But that's a very, that was a really smart move to watch Dion, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that they're more traditional in in a way. Mm-hmm. Like they they're always focusing on like the blood of the old men, of the first men. You know, kind of run. They kind of focus more on tradition in that way than they do on like, yeah, moving forward in things. They kind of respond to things when they have to. And this is kind of yeah, definitely an example of that. And having Theon there was forethought to uh, to past Ned <laughs> for keeping Theon and for knowing that they may need him in this way. Yeah. Well, and just thinking of him as um, as what I, I think it clearly demonstrates that Ned thinks of Theon as a hostage. I mean, you know, he's a political piece that needs to be guarded. I mean, it's not necessarily I don't know if he's saying to Catelyn, you know, watch out for Theon, even though this is what ends up happening. Watch out for Theon because he will betray you. I think he's definitely saying watch Theon closely because uh, he could be a valuable hostage piece if stuff does break out. Yeah, like he's yeah. definitely more cautious. Um, Who's on delay? Sorry, I paused it. <laughs> that was me. Okay. That's so eerie. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, yeah, but anyway, uh, let's go on. Um, well, wait, else? I just wanted, yeah, just one more. Is this the last time um, Eddard and Catelyn see each other? 
Mm-hmm. I believe it is. I think so. It's the last time they ever are together again. It's very sweet. Like you can see how, you know, she's, even like Ned can perceive in the way that she is holding him, how she clutched at him with her maimed hands as if she wished she could protect him forever, something like that. So sweet. You could almost, I don't want to say you could tell, but like going back, you can see that that was a fitting goodbye for them. Like it did express their, their love for each other there. And their duty, like what was most important to them too, was to protect their children. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very good. Anything else? There's a little bit of um, a comparison between Sansa and how um, Ned remembers the way she yelled at Arya that uh, it should have been Nymeria, and the way Kat kind of yelled at John, it should have been you. It sounded very cat-like. Mm. And they're both struck with grief, and you, they can definitely both be forgiven, but it's not their prettiest moment. Very true. Very true. Let's move on to Tyrion 3. Tyrion has his last dinner at Castle Black with several of the officers, including Lord Commander Mormont, who asks Tyrion to tell his family and his king of the need for men and supplies at the Night's Watch. Afterwards, he takes one last trip to the top of the wall where Jon Snow is on duty. He says his goodbyes to Jon, promising to help Bran. Uh, Stephanie, what do you got for us? I love this chapter. Um, I like being in Tyrion's head. He's one of my favorites, as he's everyone's favorite. Um, but I I really enjoyed his conversation with John, but we can get to that later. Um, just to start off with, um, Tyrion having a little spar with Alistair Thorne and him taking his lobster f- or his crab fork and was going to fight Alistair. I thought that was a good moment for Tyrion. <laughs> uh, and it also shows that kind of it's just you know I won't it's not a dark side of Tyrion but it, it just shows that he he does like playing with people doesn't he a lot yeah. more than I think is indicated in in the television show um, we've talked about that before of course but uh, and and how we feel like that Tyrion has been whitewashed a little bit but uh, I, I I love that because he he has no reason to do this other than just the fact that he doesn't really particularly like Al- Alistair and he's just you know just having a little bit of fun with him. Yeah. Um, on that note, though, Kelly, let me let me turn this question to you. Um, later on in the series, um because you get the idea that he really doesn't think much of Alistair Thorne. Later on in the series, when he sends Janos Slint to the wall, um, do you think that he would even have conceived that Alistair and Janos might uh, kind of befriend each other up there on the wall and cause as much trouble as they do? That might have been a a, a flaw there in yeah. Tyrion's plan. He definitely solved his, his here and now problems by getting Flint out of the city, but it definitely caused more problems for someone he does care about, John. Right. But I think that there, that was not thought through entirely. He was, you can look at that chapter, you know, when you get to it, to kind of look at him going, oh, Tyrion, you're not as clever yeah. as you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> 
Very good. What have you got on this chapter, Kelly? Yeah, it was very satisfying for, for Tyrion to uh, to call out Alistair because you had Donald Noy kind of stick up for for um, kind of call again, calling out John for, for where you wanted him to get support there. He got chastised. So it was satisfying in the next wall chapter to kind of get that um, humiliation that we wanted for uh, for Alistair. It's kind of sounds really evil to say that. <laughs> But it is satisfying. I get. I, I agree. Yeah, um, and it, it kind of shows this um, how different the wall mentality is from the rest of the realm, and you can see it between the way Tyrion believes that Alistair is fit only to shovel flop in the uh, stables, you know, and then, but here on the wall, like just because somebody fought for the wrong king or um, has dishonored themselves somehow in the south, where or just anywhere in the realm, then that doesn't mean that they aren't of use at the wall. Like they can find a use for him in here. It's his, his skills are actually highly valued. And, you know, Tyrion from the realm kind of sees that as he can't see that. And whereas the Mormont kind of explains that this is what we, this is what we are here. And it's, it, it does kind of illustrate the, um, uh, what's that called? The merit-based society that they have there. And this is one way where it does kind of work in, in their favor. Um, to the way they do live up to the principle that they kind of claim to, as opposed to kind of before when we talked about where it kind of seemed like the highborns got better treatment for no reason. So it's nice to see that. But even you know, even if it is disappointing because it's Alistair and he's a jerk, the right. principles <laughs> still still apply even to jerks. Well, and he is a knight according to Mormont too. So it's not like he isn't a little higherborn, or at least made to be. If he had had any children, they would be higherborn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So maybe it isn't completely flawed, <laughs> but it's, it's, he he references specifically his skills, his his ability to um to train at sword, yes. highly valued. I agree with that very much. Oh, so and we get Mister Eamon. I, I just yeah. love that he makes he makes everyone laugh, and everybody does that lean in to listen to him saying and his um he just you can tell that he's highly respected, and that's really great to see that there's. Um, even like here, like uh, a maester, kind of comparing him to in the in the past chapter, this Pycelle um, comparing him to Aemon here, and how Pycelle seems so out of it, and you know he's about to fall asleep in the council room, and here Mr. Aemon's older than the the king who Pycelle served when he first joined, right? <laughs> uh, when he became grand maester, so just how much more of a accolade this guy is, how much more of a scholar and how much more respected he is. And it's great to actually, it actually gave me more value in these officers that Mormont's eating with because they all quieted down and listened, listened to him. It did show that they valued wisdom. That was cool. Very good. Um, something that we talked about last week in terms of, uh, Tyrion being possibly nefarious, especially in regard to this whole dagger thing, um, and and the comment that he made, I guess, to John was it about being sorry about Bran. Um, there seems to be zero clue of Tyrion uh, even remarking to John or himself about anything other than just you know helping Bran here. I'm not sure if he thinks that he can, but I I, don't, I didn't sense any sense of malice or or 
or dismissal in what Tyrion says here. So at this point, let me just ask you both, if you were a first-time book reader who hadn't seen the show, would you still think that the connection between Tyrion and, and the dagger or the Bran's assassination attempt uh, is the truth? I don't think so. Just from being, you know, what Tyrion chapter is this? Is this Tyrion 2, 3? Three, I think. Three. So after being in his head already and kind of seeing how he interacts with other people, he just, I mean, he's not, like you said, the whitewashed character he is in the show, but he's not the kind of character that would send a random, like, uh, assassin with his own blade to go kill a young boy. That just doesn't seem his character. His character is more taunting Alistair Thorne with his, like, crab fork and being kind of a, a jerk, but not a murderer at this point. He's not, he just doesn't seem like he'd do that. Yeah, I agree. And, and to uh, quote Bubba from the Joffrey of podcast Drink Iontron, um <laughs> it would definitely seem that as a murderer, Tyrion just doesn't measure up to me. No. <laughs> How did I do? How did I do? I nah. bought it. I bought it that you that you believe that, <laughs> but I disagree. <laughs> right. I really think in in the first, and you're only about twenty chapters in. Are you you are, you're only three Tyrion chapters in. But we've had twenty chapters. But we've had all of these other chapters where we're building up this um, case against Tyrion. So I think on my first read, I kind of left it as a possibility where. Um, he could have, like, there could be more to the Tyrion chapter, to the Tyrion character than what we're given in the chapters. Mm. I don't think, yeah, I think, especially here, the way he does kind of act a little dismissive and almost um, tuning out Commander Mormont, and we, you know, that's a threat that we know is real as readers, so Tyrion's dismissal of that seems mm. foolish and careless and um, arrogant, so these characteristics not being his best characteristics shown here can kind of color him to be a little bit more um, villainous, but not not necessarily in you know, such a way that I thought that I was reading a villain chapter. I was just believing that there was more to a story that I didn't have yet. Very good. Very good. What else have we got on this chapter, guys? Stephanie? I thought it was particularly interesting when Tyrion was going back to his chambers for the night he just decided on a whim or he felt that he really wanted to go back up to the top of the wall. Um, And I was going to ask you guys, what do you think that curiosity was? Do you think it was maybe the magic in the wall calling to him? Was it just him wanting to go stand on top of the world once again? Um, What what do you think? Because I was really intrigued because even he couldn't really explain what was making him do this. Yeah. And it's hard to put it in a perspective. I, I mean, from as a first-time reader, I was still somebody who had seen the show, and so I don't. Uh, maybe the earlier chapter for me, where he was reading all of these books, he was just to me, it was just kind of like this nagging scholar part of him saying, "This is the last time I may ever be here again. I have to see what the view is one more time." Mm-hmm. It, it was a satisfaction of his uh, intellectual and, and perhaps even. Uh, I don't know, his appreciative side of architecture and what have you. But uh, I I don't think there was anything more to it than that myself personally. Of course, in in the show, we just 
we knew it was just because he wanted to take the world's longest leak. But right. <laughs> uh, but there's no mention of that here in the book. So yeah, I don't I don't think it's a spoiler. It's just a, a very small comment that is made later, and that he wanted to travel when he um, became came of age, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't mm-hmm. I wouldn't denied denied that to him. Um, and I think this is kind of not showing that that has always been true. Like that's not just something that George decided to write when that passage came up. It was definitely in him from the start. And this is one of the furthest places he's gotten to travel. And he is getting an opportunity. He, he was denied when he was, when he came of age. So it's, it's very believable that this was his reaction was just, but okay, one more to time. See yeah. But it, yeah. Is, it, it is tempting to look at it as, you know, he just stopped for a moment to look up at it. And then in a, the way it's worded, it's suddenly a strange madness to cold of him mm-hmm. and yearning to look once more. So it kind of does imply more of a pull than an internal inclination. So I put coincidentally or fate, because even once he gets up to the top, he has to decide if he goes east or west. Right. And the way, he, the way he chooses, he does end up running into John, which is west, I think. So symbolic, <clears throat> excuse me, symbolic yes. or fate. It does kind of kind of walk that line. <laughs> Very good. I can see that. I can definitely see that. What have you got, Kelly? Anything? Oh, we can talk more about the horrors that are apparently happening that no one south of the wall is listening to. You get a whole spew of them from Mormont. Like, just yeah. basically, what we read in the prologue is not an isolated incident, you know. So, and you hear about how ramshackled you know, the night's not just become how decrepit and run down. And it's just those two elements combined in this chapter really illustrate the um, the true drama that I think we're all waiting for. So, you know, the, the strength is less than a thousand of the night's watch. And in two years, Mormon is going to be 70. So he has to think about succession. And yep. <laughs> he only has 20 men besides his officers who can read out of 600. <laughs> so that's not a great pool to pull from. And Benjamin um, disappeared. Right. That also comes up and how that is a concern. Um, and that's his best, you know, his best ranger. And um, now kind of you got, got that. Oh, I'm sorry. My macaroni and cheese is sneaking up on me. <clears throat> <laughs> but yeah, so you have a, at the end of the chapter, John says that he's going to go out and look for him. So it's just going to be this domino effect of like, you keep sending out rangers to look for rangers and you're just going to be left with fewer rangers in the end. Right. So, um, but then the real horrors are the things like the um, East Watch, uh, the Fisher folks by East Watch have seen White Walkers and uh, around the coast and more and more wildlings are slipping through more numbers than they've ever seen before. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a lovely implication there because it makes me wonder if one of those wildlings that they see slipping through might be, uh, OSHA. Ah. You know, or you, that, that, that band that she was with, um, it would be very interesting to see if I don't recall in the, because it's been a long time since I read these books, if it's revealed which way she came or not. But, um, yeah, I, I just love stuff like that. 
Anything else? Hello? Hello? Well, Hello? I want to talk about his conversation with John because that was one of my favorite parts that we've read so far. Very good. Go ahead. I thought it was a great conversation. And, of course, the dire wolf ghost was with him. Um, I like that Tyrion said, oh, well, he bite off my arm if I try to pet, if I touch him. And John's like, no, that's fine here. Um, and then they get into really like kind of a, I think it's a sweet conversation about, you know, Tyrion says, oh, I'm going, you know, to Winterfell. Do you want me to do anything? And he goes, oh, you know, tell uh, Rob that like I'm going to be protecting the realm so he can just go do needlework. And then tell Rickon that he can have all my stuff because he'll ask where I am. And tell, he goes, I don't know what to tell Bran. And I like that Tyrion's inner monologue was like, people are sure asking a lot of me today. <laughs> it is funny, though, because he did offer John anything I can do. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, funny. It's just like, uh, it's, to me, that's almost like Tyrion saying, well, you asked for this. <laughs> right? And then it's, then when John calls him his friend or he says, bye, friend, that was really sweet, and Tyrion kind of didn't know what to make of that, but I thought that was a, I thought it was just a good conversation between the two of them. They kind of have a mutual, like, John's the bastard, Tyrion says he's a bastard because he's a dwarf, like, they kind of have that little bonding thing going on. I just, I, I really like their conversation. Tyrion taught John how to see family members in the flames. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That might not be one uh, one of the lessons that he's learned from, from Tyrion that he values, but it is probably like from what I can tell, this really feels like it's one of the first times and maybe a long time, if ever, somebody has really told Tyrion that they value him and what he has taught them. Um, and that's really powerful. Like we we like to feel like we have like a, a lineage or a heritage or something that we are giving back and that it's surprisingly fulfilling. Um, to hear somebody tell you that you've done something um, that was meaningful to them. And it's just a very honest moment from John in a kind of, it does kind of show that Tyrion is probably not as villainous as he's been painted by people in King's Landing. Um, right. That he does value that, that he does, that does mean something to him to hear that from John. Yeah. And, and, and just a line of, you know, tell Rob that I'm going to be commander of the Night's Watch. Uh, just a straight, direct foreshadowing uh, for later on in the series. It's just awesome to me. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that was really good. So young. Never. It'll never happen. Yeah. Childish dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I did like that even after the encounter with uh, with ghost in the woods before that he still wanted to pet ghost. So I like to imagine <laughs> there's been some like the Tyrion and, and ghost that somehow made up since then. He sounds like he's been at the wall for a month or two. So it feels like he's <laughs> they've patched and made up and, and at least are on um presence they're able to be in each other's presence without uh threats of attack. So it seems to be like that last little hurdle that they got over and they've made their peace together <laughs> before he left. Yeah. Do you think that's Ghost sensing John's peace towards Tyrion or before John didn't trust Tyrion, I guess? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I think that is what it is. 
<laughs> Anything else on this chapter, guys? Um, I just have one thing. Oh, what were you going to say, Kelly? It's just that we got the, the weather talks about how many um, winters Tyrion has seen. He's a young man, but he's only seen eight or nine winters. Um, it kind of helps people who like to do calculations about how long, you know, the, um, the seasons last here and um, kind of get the, uh, this is where I think it's first set up that there will be a, a long winter coming and what that actually means is, is important at the wall in this location. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that and poor uh, the old bear, you know, makes his pleas to Tyrion, you know, ask the king, you know, for help. We need help. And then Tyrion thinks to himself, well, the king's just going to laugh at me or the king's just going to say whatever, you know, Jamie's going to laugh at me. Like, it's kind of a sad state of affairs up at the wall. Not that we didn't know that already, but even after, you know, Tyrion's talk with Mormont and Mormont wanting him to, like, you know, have them send help up to the wall Tyrion's like, this is going to fall on deaf ears. There's no point. <laughs> right. But it, it also seems, he seems resolved that he is going to ask the question anyway, despite what he he's thinks sure, yeah. the answers are going to be. And I think that I love how that points to um, Tyrion. You know, it, it, even he tries so hard to be a member of the Lannister family that that uh, he sometimes takes their words and, and, well, they're not necessarily the family words, but just kind of like these little family mottos and, He's going to apply them no matter what, no, even though it, he yeah. does know it's pointless. Yeah. yeah, and I think that just shows, you know, more of Tyrion's character, that he is going to do what he said he's going to do, you know, whether it's going to be a fruitless mission or not. He's still going to do right. it. Right. Very good. So it, doesn't, it doesn't reflect too well on Tyrion, though. If, if this person, Mormont, that he respects seems to have this emphatic need that he's trying to implore Tyrion with and Tyrion's I guess maybe he's just resigned to the fact that nobody will take him seriously but it doesn't say much that he's kind of written it off as a foregone conclusion that no help will come like it's not even like he's he's resolving to do whatever he can to help these men that he respects here at the wall Mm. you know and he does have a position in whether or not he needs to go to the king or needs to go to Cersei to get results he could still do something Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I wonder. I wonder if this shows kind of demonstrates a lack of confidence that Tyrion has in himself to be able to convince any of them of the need. Yeah, and kind of how he is a slave to that, to the approval and, and to the higher ups above him. Yeah. And that he he could do something like he is a lordling. Like he has his family is powerful. He doesn't need permission from his father or. You know, and maybe that would be something that would actually, yeah, to impress his father would be to do something on his own, not just, you know, in the name of the Lannisters or something. Yeah, very good. Oh, it's what could have been. <laughs> the what could have been. Uh. We could write a whole other series on that. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely could. Anything else on Tyrion, guys? Nope. No. All right. Arya 2. Here's your quick summary. Arya contemplates that all, or Arya contemplates all that has happened since Micah the Butcher Boy. She gets to keep her sword needle after a talk with her father, and is given an instructor to learn to use her sword. An instructor by the name of Sirio Farrell. Uh, let's keep Stephanie. I saw the the hashtag Sirio Rule, so let's start with you. Yes. Yeah. I love this chapter too, as well. I love Serio. 
we're just going to jump right into Serio. I love that Serio, the first sword of Bravos, made his appearance. It was a great, great chapter. Um, and not just because Serio ends up being a very colorful and fun and fan favorite character in the show, but also I think it shows that Eddard really like listened to his daughter that she didn't want to be a lady and be with Septa Mordain all day and knit. And so she had her needle and she wanted, you know, to be the tomboy and to go out there and learn how to sword fight. And what, three days later, she goes and has dancing lessons with Serio. I think that's just a really great moment for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I think that does, that is kind of a triumphant in there. What did you make when you read this about the difference of appearance between the casting of Sirio Pharrell and, and what he's described as here? Well, obviously, the first thing that stands out is that he's bald in the book. And, you know, in the show, he has a very luscious, curly head of hair and a mustache and everything. Um, personally, I like to think of the serial from the show because it was kind of hard after watching the show to try to picture this bald guy when Serio in the show, I don't know the actor's name, but he has so much charisma and sparkle and just presence. It's kind of hard to imagine someone else. Ah. What do you guys think? (laughs) Now, Kelly, you read the book before you saw the show, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So from the other way, how did it work for you? He was not as impactful of a character when I read the book in terms of just his appearance. Um, I think it just made sense that he was slight and bald was more of an interesting characteristic than we've gotten from the rest of the free cities. He's kind of gotten the terror. She with her colorful flamboyant, <laughs> uh, you know, hair. So this was, I think, distinguished a bravosi from a terror. She in my mind, and that was that was kind of the extent of it, and the fact that he was slight, whereas I think in the show he's just a little huskier, um, it kind of kept made a difference between why I thought that um, Ned would have hired Furio to do this um, to teach him the, to teach Arya the water dancing, and it, that was a little bit more um, logical, I think, uh, but. That was about the only difference is it didn't make that big of a, I mean, I think the guy in the show was awesome. So I didn't yeah. mind the change. So, um, but, it, and he was a little shorter, I think that, and that kind of like evened it out a little bit. Like a Bravosi doesn't rely on strength and size and that whether he was, and the, just the fact that he was shorter, I think helped that. Mm-hmm. Very good. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Can I can I just say finally, 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 can I get a woot woot for Arya saying stupid? I don't <laughs> care about their stupid tourney. Finally I get Arya saying stupid. It's been about time. Two Arya. It is about in. time. <laughs> uh, but oh, yeah, no. I'm sorry. Kelly, uh you have a note for us. Yeah, this is the chapter where my uh my Twitter namesake came from. This is where you you hear that uh Fat Tom, Arthur, Ari Underfoot. I know. That's so cute. <laughs> Very endearing, and and I don't know why, but just that that nickname always stuck with me. Um, and this chapter in particular, um, I am very lucky, and I have an amazing dad who Ned in this chapter reminds me of, and it just totally touches my heart how sweet he is with her, how understanding and patient he is, 
And this is like a whole chapter worth of examples of how um, precious children are to him. Um, he just has this apparently unending supply of patience for Arya. Um, yeah, it's very, very beautiful to see him compare her to um, Liana. And he doesn't even like say it to be flattering. Um, he just says, tells her that she looks like Liana and Arya puts the connection together that that's kind of his own way of telling her that she's beautiful. And it was very, I don't know, any, anyone who's like a daddy's girl, like I'm totally a daddy's girl, it's just, this whole chapter just rings true because his love is unconditional. And I think this is a really good example too of a difference in parenting between Tywin and Ned. And you see just how yeah. he accepts their children for how they are. You have this very similar Aria quote where she says that she remembers she overhearing um, a lesson that Ned was giving to Rob about sitting with your men, don't ask them to die for a stranger. And you have very similar um, statements in the Cersei chapters where she repeats things that she overheard Tywin teaching Jamie. And it's kind of this very similar way of girls learning, you know, by proxy mm. on how, you know, just values that their family hold to. Yeah. Uh- Another interesting thing for me about Ned when he was describing Arya was he said uh, she has the wolf blood, you know, yeah. uh, and and even compared that to Brandon as well, um, and uh, uh, his brother Brandon, not his son Brandon, uh, Bran. But I I I love that comparison. But it's the thing in Ned's talk about the lone wolf dying that I I found very interesting in a reread or if you've watched the, uh, all of the TV show because. Um, who are the one the Starks who have survived? They're the ones that, that went their own ways. Arya has become a lone wolf and went her own way, and she is still alive. Um, Sansa uh, has had to go her own way, and she is still alive. Rickon, even, has had to go into his own way with Osha, and he is still alive. And, of course, Bran. It's the lone wolves that are surviving, not the... Not You're the- right. Ah, <laughs> uh, but Matt, winter is not here yet. Uh-huh. <laughs> That is true. The winter will be in the next book, and so we may see our Starks reuniting so that they can survive. Well, what else did um, Ned say about the his siblings with wolf blood that they let, led untimely deaths, or they went to an early grave? He said that about both of his siblings. So very interesting. Uh, and so far, Ned was wrong. So far. So far. Uh, well, not about his observations about Brandon or Liana, but uh, yeah, yeah, he, he's basing this—he's basing this talk on experience, obviously, not on uh, any kind of foresight. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think yeah. most of the stark knowledge and tradition pretty um, was very heavily weighted. Um, anything that they ba- say based on experience, they've pretty much ruled the North exclusively for eight thousand years. I mean, that is unheard of in Westeros. So. They were doing something right, I think, and most of their wisdom just makes good sense. And it mm-hmm. could be that his wisdom worked in the past, or maybe his wisdom worked before these political machinations became a part of society. Um, but it's, there are other reasons I think that it might be not working right now. But it it um, it just needs to maybe be adjusted to the times, and not necessarily is untrue. So in other words, what you're saying, to uh, paraphrase on behalf of Bubba from the Joffrey of Podcasts, <laughs> Drink Ion Throne, um, 
what you are saying is that Ned is antiquated. Perhaps, perhaps that was his downfall, and that is why four books have been filled with Stark children. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse and me. And we'll get to see. Um, I'm with you, man. <laughs> I keep muting to do the same thing. Uh, this is, you know, this is another time, Stephanie, that I've noticed that this is more than once that uh, the book has made a bit about Arya and John, I guess both Arya and John's perspective about finishing each other's sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, I pointed this out before, but now, I mean, now it seems like it's something that he's really hammering home. And I don't really feel like it's been followed up in the books or, and it was never really implied in the show. Um, so it's just, just a thing to just show that they're close. Is that, is that all they're trying to show? I think so, and they also make a point to always say that Arya and Jon are the ones that look like Starks. All the other uh, Stark children look like Tullys, so maybe it is just a closeness that, you know, Arya and Jon are really close, and they look like each other, they finish each other's sentences. You're not going the creepy way, are you, Matt? No, I'm not going to go the creepy way, not... Okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, it just seems like, to me, it seems like George is really trying to, to hammer some kind of point home, and I'm trying to figure out what that point is, I guess is all I'm saying. I, I think it's just that, you know, because John gave her needles, so that's really special to her. She didn't even want to rat or, you know, tell on John that he's the one who got needle for her. Um, and then Eddard said it wouldn't matter anyways. I think, I think they just have, like, a special bond as siblings. I'm an only child, so I can't really relate, but I feel like since there's so many Stark children, six, but I think they just have a special bond maybe because they feel like the outcast. Ah, very good. I like that. I like that. Um, what else have we got on this chapter, Stephanie? Oh, let's see. What do? Oh, well, of course, got to bring up my direwolves. I know people are going to hate that, but... Um, you know, she she's telling Ned, like, you know, Nymeria didn't really run away. We had to throw rocks at her, and she was so sad and so heartbroken, not, o- not only over Nymeria, but over her friend, Micah, the butcher's boy, and she was blaming herself. And, you know, for a nine-year-old girl to feel such remorse and such sadness, that was really hard to see. Um or, you know, to feel with her. She was just so broken up about that. And I think Ned, as her father, I think he helped a lot, saying, you know, it was right that Nymeria ran away, or, you know, you chased her away, even if you did have to lie about it. So I think that was just another great Arya and Ned moment. Are you? Kelly? Yeah. Um, I wanted to, to bring in a little bit on the um, the sibling part. I did think that that was, uh, and then I want to talk about Iroh too. <laughs> Go ahead. The sibling thing was um, it did ring it ring really true to me because uh, I, I've got two brothers and they're both really really different. Um, one's like total jock and one is like very flamboyant gay guy. So as far very dichotomous brothers, and there's definitely these niches that I fit in with both of them, and so there's there are things that I think about when I think about for my older brother and it's like the top three things that will come to mind. And then, you know, there's so much more, you know, in your 
history together. But when you think about your siblings, it, there will be some very specific pictures that come to mind. We all live in different states now. So it's like, it's all this kind of history that you have together. And she kind of does it when she looks out the window and she wishes that she could climb like Bran. Like you just associate these things with your siblings that they, you just kind of, that's all you know. It's like a majority of your life. And especially when you're nine, like her, you know, like right. they kind of fill these roles. And like maybe even, yeah, Rob and, or I'm sorry, um, uh, John and she kind of looked up to their siblings that kind of had already filled the roles that might have been expected of them, and they filled them so well. Like, Rob filled the older brother role perfectly, and, and Sansa filled the lady of the house per- role perfectly. And so they kind of mm-hmm. felt this outcast. Like they didn't have a role to fill where they could just be them. They would constantly be compared to someone else, or they would constantly be feel like they <clears throat> didn't measure up in their role. <laughs> so... Um, I don't. I'm I think you, that, that that's a really that's a good perspective. Like, like I said, because I don't have siblings. Of course, all my friends and I have cousins and everything. But you know, you growing up with siblings, I'm I'm glad you shared that perspective. Thanks, yeah, Kel. Yeah, it rings true, and it, it is kind of, and that may not be true for everyone, but it definitely um, for a nine year right. old, seemed, seemed like the way that she would simplify relationships down to her favorite things about them. Um, and then a way for that for it to be conveyed in a book, too. Um, but for, yeah, the, the direwolf, um, it was really sweet when she did bring up that how guilty she felt. And that was actually what I was thinking when, um, Matt, when you asked earlier if the uh, grand visions were, or his dream sequence was uh, coming and proving true. And my question throughout that whole dream sequence was, what are these, you know, on an answerable question, really, was what are these um, secrets that Arya is holding in her heart? And could that really mean only now, or is it a future dream for, you know, book five Arya, <laughs> which we know she's got right. secrets in her heart then. Mm. Um, but for even here, it does, it does make sense that she's feeling the guilt of having asked Micah to practice with her and then lying about what happened to Nymeria and these are these kind of these things that she has been maybe for a nine-year-old um, very serious and, and holding her, keeping her awake at night or, or clutching her secrets close to her at night. Mm. I could see those being them. Mm. And maybe uh, we did say that if, uh, since Sansa doesn't have her wolf, I was actually pulled up a, a map and ours is on a different continent. Um, and through the Vale is in the south, and she might have to go through the, the Riverlands if she wants to go north. So there might be a uh, a wolf encounter there. I don't know if we want to talk about that Ooh. more for this section. I just realized that that's totally not in the show. I'm sorry. Totally not in the show. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, and no, and especially because Nymeria is running with such a big pack. But, yeah, right. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about that more in the spoiler section yeah. if you want, okay. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anything else on this chapter, though? I recover from my blunder. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, well, since we were talking about fathers, I was just going to say Kelly has a dad like Ned. My dad would have loved a daughter like Aria, and I have um, a Tywin Lannister father. So we can go oh. into that later, guys. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah. After after hours, yeah. after hours, the psychology podcast. Yeah, you're, you're online with Doctor <laughs> Podcast Winterfell. Uh, yeah. Uh, anything else on our guys? 
there is there is a bit of um disillusionment that Arya is kind of going through here. She really um does like a quick one eighty on her um father and um the Winterfell, you know, guards, the Stark men. They she kind of calls them out and is mad at them all since they uh, let Sandor kill Micah. She really holds that against all of them and this might be that first moment that she gets this She's really honestly disillusioned from strength and honor and, and the ideals that she's kind of developed in the North. In mm. Yeah. Let's kind of feed this little hatred ball in her, I think, um, that she's was lied to. She, she and John, I think, are similar in that way and what their, their development and their very harsh reality, rude awakening that they're experiencing right now. Right. And I love the fact that at this moment, since she hasn't learned anything about the prayer uh, yet, um, mm-hmm. that she's still calling, you know, she's still hating Sandor, but she doesn't really have <laughs> any other way to deal with it yet. You know, it's fun to see these names that she picks up as she goes along, how they become part of that prayer later on and, and uh, become, you know, a true part of her identity, her identity becomes about taking care of some of these people, right? So. Oh yeah. Um, Heavily, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I like the idea. You know, you're talking about just her her losing a little bit of faith about uh, the quote unquote system in general here. I think that's a great observation, Kelly. Anything else? Yeah. Excellent. All right, let's move on to Daenerys three. Daenerys recalls the days and the ride from the wedding to their current location in the Dothraki Sea when Viserys attacks her for giving orders that he must obey. Her servants, including Jorah Mormont, rescue her, and she punishes Viserys accordingly. Later, she asks her slaves about dragons and one particular slave about lovemaking, and after a passage of time and travel, Daenerys becomes pregnant with Tal Drogo's child. I, I'm going to start this one, guys, and just say I, I can't help. Again, I, I keep relating things back to Bran's dream here. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's talk about these dragons in the Shadowlands beyond the Shy, and uh, they yep. keep mentioning these. They keep mentioning these. And I know that we kind of have postulated that perhaps it's because the eggs are from a Shy or whatever. Um, her maids certainly don't think her dragon that dragons exist anymore anywhere else. Um I'm not entirely convinced. Darn it. I want to be crackpot and say that there are dragons floating out there in the Shadowlands just saying, come get us, come get us, come get us. We're going to help you with the White Walkers somewhere. Yeah. And the um, the passage that really stuck out to me was the, the talk that she thought, or I guess it was just a thought she had right after that. She mentioned that uh, to her maids was that magic had died in the West when the doom fell on Valeria and the lands of yeah. summer. That never occurred to me that I've always assumed, and I don't know why, that magic was, has, has gone from the world when the last dragon died, but which always seemed like a very nice, neat bow on, you know, a world story and a fantasy mm-hmm. that it left the world, not like a section of the world, you know? So this idea that there is still magic in the East, and whether that's Valor, whether that's a whole other god that we haven't heard of, or just another name for this power that they're all calling by different names. 
uh, I didn't, I'm on board with the, the East being this mystery place that we've never traveled and anything could be happening there. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's pinpoil or crackpot that it's, uh, that there's dragons flying around over there. Yay! <laughs> I completely agree. I, I hope there's dragons as well. And I, I guess, you know, she's so, I guess, firm in her position that magic you know, went out of the world when the doom of Valeria happened. But I, I agree with Kelly that I think magic's still all around the world, just not maybe in the largest quantities as it used to be. And there's not dragons flying over Westeros, but who knows where they could be east in the shy. We don't know. I agree. I agree. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Uh, very cool. What do we got on this chapter? Let's start with you, Kelly. Well, this chapter has probably reminded me of all of my arguments that I have to pull out whenever they ask me, who's your favorite Game of Thrones character? Uh, and it's Danny. And people always kind of give you a look like either that's the obvious answer or how could you? And it's, this chapter, I think, embodies a lot of my reasoning. And it's it shows... A, like her whole arc is huge and in this chapter it's like this microcosm mini arc that you can see that she went from just her struggle from marrying Drogo to enjoying her marriage to Drogo and then going from becoming Khaleesi and then enjoying being Khaleesi and going out from under her brother's fear um, I don't know like shackles that he's got on her Mm -hmm. that she now is reversed that and has actually exerted power over him. She's gone through this huge arc in just this chapter, and I think this might be the start of where uh, I just really started to have a lot of respect for her and what's made her stand out amongst all these other characters who are victimized and how she's um, not much older than any of these other ones and how she handles it with such grace, I think, and um, kindness and this heart that she adds to the story and um yeah i think that those are the best ways i could describe what this chapter really meant to me and she's adapting really quickly she's and i think that comes from not having the cultural identity of her own is that she can see value in cultures that aren't that she didn't originally relate to and she can embrace them as she's in them and among them. And the way she rides to the front of the Kalasar when she's used to it and, and sees the beauty in front of her and she can find the beauty in all of these moments that are struggles. Mm-hmm. This chapter was really great in my, I think, right. developing my arguments for liking Danny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, on, on the heels of that, Kelly, what we've seen demonstrated in both the books and the show is this, uh, what, what, people often call the Marinese not. Um, were you, when you got to those sections in the television show or in the books, um, because you liked Danny so much, did you feel perhaps more frustrated by this than, say, somebody who didn't pay that much attention to Danny? Probably. The, more so with the book than the show. I think with okay. it being a show, it's, it's really easy to just enjoy the visuals and to find value in the... You know, just right. That's a pretty dress she has on. I don't care that political <laughs> crap is still happening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, Dario's in it. I don't care what's happening. So, 
I think it was pretty easy to, to get over it in the show, the, the way it kind of slogged a little bit. Um, but the, the book was definitely a struggle. It was because you're in her head <laughs> and you're almost there with her with these impossible choices that she has to make. And then she makes some that you, you don't want for her, like the marriage and chaining up her dragons. Like these aren't the things that you want to see her doing. But you, I don't, for me, it was easy to sympathize and to understand her reasoning, probably because I had this pre-established like Team Danny um, feelings going on. What about you? Where did you guys start, and where did you guys feel that her her arc ended up going? How do you feel, Steph? Well, I I do like this chapter of Danny, and I like her in the book up until the Miranee is not, and then for the show, I think. I have a completely different feeling. I feel like Amelia Clark was great, you know, the first couple seasons, and I've just found her delivery bad and kind of what Kelly said, just, oh, look at the pretty dresses. Oh, what are you doing now? Just kind of like, meh. But I don't know if that's my show-watching, tainting my book-reading view or what, but I've never had that big of an opinion either way on Danny, but I did really enjoy this chapter. I think a lot happened with her character development and I I feel like as the books and the show go on, her character doesn't develop as much. I think it's kind of one note. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think the book you had inside her head to Mm -hmm. be the the struggle and the heart that was really aching for in her, whereas in the show, she's very stoic. Yeah, and that doesn't—it's not conveyed as well. Yeah, and you okay, don't—yeah, nice. you don't know what's going on or anything. But yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. But, what about you, Matt? What do you say, Matt? Well, for me, um, the Marinese not in the books was troublesome, and I kept trying, especially during the first part of season five, I kept trying to equate what I thought was the theme of the fifth fifth book. Uh, especially in regards to Danny, was about identity, the struggle to find our, her identity again. Because it feels to me like um, the whole premise of her going to Marine um, sets forth this kind of character struggle within herself to, to find herself again. Like here, this chapter is so beautiful because she is finding herself. She's discovering herself and she's charging straight ahead. Whereas it seems like later on in the story, she's questioning herself all the time. And, and she's really, uh, instead of, instead of uh, seeking who she is, she's instead questioning who she has been. Um, and there's, there's a whole string of phrases that have been brought up in the books, of, you know, don't look back, whatever. Um, and yet that's what she seemingly constantly does. Uh, and so as a reader, I really found that frustrating um, as a TV show watcher, um, I just felt like they didn't make the books. There, there are things that happen that we haven't, I don't guess, particularly seen completely in the television show um, that at least make those chapters somewhat interesting for me for a read. But it's usually not about because it's about Danny, but about because what's happening around her, right? Right. Um, and and yeah. I didn't feel like the TV show was achieving that quite as well because they did try to make it more about Danny. Uh, and so, therefore, it seemed more stagnant to me than the books did. Yeah, when the color, when the interesting parts are, are the characters and the colors that are around her, and they're not giving you a wide enough screen to enjoy those, it's, and it's just focusing on her stoic 
presence. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. presence. It does. It does become very stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. It did do that a bit. I, I agree. Um. <laughs> um. Yeah, but I, I think all of these viewpoints. I, I mean, I can certainly understand your frustration with the book versus the show too, Kelly. I mean, that that's. Uh, uh, I think there's not a book reader alive who doesn't complain <laughs> at least at one point in those <laughs> chapters, right? Um, you know, but uh, that's uh, that's for another day, folks. You can go back and listen to our feast dance tandem read once you get there if you're a new reader. So please do. You can hear us. You can hear um, Bubba from the Joffrey podcast, Drink Iron Throne, uh, ramble on and on about how bored he is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, there you go. Um, what else have we? <laughs> what else have we got on this chapter? Uh, Stephanie, what about you? Uh, Danny's dragon dreams. How about that? All right. <laughs> um, and you know she dreams. She dreams that she's being there's a black dragon that's you know breathing fire on her, and then you know she realizes that the dragon in her dream is the same as her dragon eggs that Jora gave her. Right. No, Jordan didn't give them to her. Illyrio, right? Right. Right. Um, and, you know, then she eventually touches the eggs and she says, oh, my gosh, they're hot, but they're just rocks. And then, oh, they're, they've been out in the sun. But I found that her, her, dream, her dragon dream was very, I, don't, I guess, foretelling, perhaps, for the hmm. foreshadowing. Yeah. Or is it just a direct vision of of her future in a way that too yeah yeah absolutely kelly any thoughts on that on the dragon yeah i i remember we were talking about that previously i think it was with susan we were talking about this this dragon dream and what it um to me what really stuck out was she calls it the dragon dream (laughs) and i can't tell if it means the dragon dream, like mm. if this this is a specific dragon that she keeps dreaming about, or if it's the dragon dream, and it's this like a wolf dream or something like that. It, it's right. lowercase, so there's no real way to to know. But um, she doesn't call it a dragon dream; it's the dragon dream, and I'm just kind of latching onto that as as meaningful. And yeah, it comes to her in this moment where she feels like she can't go on anymore. She feels like she reached her limit and she's going to kill herself. It's this really heartbreaking moment for her. And she's gone through all of this hardship and we know where it goes at the end of the chapter. So it's this real bound moment for her and you, you feel for her. And you, I don't know, none of us have probably been in a situation that rough, like bodily, mentally, spiritually, whatever. She's just at the end of all of her ropes. So uh, from what we've seen, this woman in the show, I, I think we can, not too spoiler, to, to talk about Kais and, and what she, how she comes to Danny. And I wonder if she's been with her from the beginning here. And because you don't know when she started coming to her. Um, and that's just kind of a, a thought that I've had, that she she keeps reminding of Danny of her strength and, and when she comes to her. So it could be this happening here, this really suspicious things that we can put on our tinfoil hat to talk about later. <laughs> right on. <laughs> uh, what else we got on this chapter, guys? What do you have, Matt? <laughs> well, I, to be honest, I didn't take a whole lot of notes because I knew this was going to be a chapter you guys were going to talk a lot about. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I just rolled with the punches with you guys because I had no idea where it was going to go. 
the truth comes out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will be the first to admit uh, that because of certain beliefs that I have about Jon Snow, uh, over the course of rereading any material about Danny, it has become less important to me. That, now, that's not to say that in this chapter um, I don't find the read compelling, that I don't feel for her character, that I don't admire her in her ability to, to bring herself out of this funk. Um, and, and I appreciate the, the possibility that this dream is kind of a catalyst uh, for something, I won't say magical, but something definitely definitively changes within her uh, because of this dream. And I think that that is very significant. Um, but as far as, um, you know, investing in, in copious notes or anything like that, I, I really do. <laughs> for me, I've always, um, I've never wanted Danny to get back to Westeros. I'm very content with her staying in Essos and ruling there and taking her heritage there. Like she's never, when, like even in this chapter, she talks about home and with Jorah and you can you yeah. see that she, she pictures uh, Dragonstone, but all of the doors are red. She has this, this identity for her that doesn't tie her to Westeros entirely. It doesn't in, in her family to, to some extent, but for the most part, her, her individual identity is who she has been her life in Essos. I've always held that I, whether other things happen and, and someone else ends up ruling Westeros, like I want her to stay in Essos and, and that's the value I see in her chapters and her growth and her embracing all of these cultures she comes across in Essos. Um, and, and that's why the Jon Snow stuff never really uh, ends up mattering when I read her stuff because I, I want her to stay in Essos. Ah, very good. Very good. I understand that. Um, what, Stephanie, let me ask you this. Um, we've talked about Danny's storyline in relation to the rest of the storylines of Westeros as being kind of behind or, or, or happening uh, before, I'm sorry, than stuff that we see in Westeros. But it seems to me like right here at the end of this chapter, there's a, there's a jump for Danny's timeline. Uh, yeah. One, one moment a bump is, there is, you know, one minute she's straddling Drogo, and the next minute, uh, you know, it, 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 as they've continued their ride, now she has a baby bump. So, that, first of all, this is a very long ride, obviously, to get to wherever they're going. And second of all, um, do you feel like that this is where she is catching up to the rest of the storyline in, in Westeros? Um, I think so, and like you said, it must be a long ride, especially to start showing um, when you're yeah. pregnant. You know, that has to be at least three, maybe even a little longer along. So, And we don't see those time jumps that much in George R. R. Martin's in the books. He doesn't usually give us a sense of time that much, except, mm-hmm. you know, winter's last 10 years, and how long does it take to get from here to there? You know, we don't really know time and distance and everything. So I think it is interesting that we jumped so far from when, you know, she was conceiving the baby and then all of a sudden now she has a baby bump and she's pregnant. And, I mean, I guess it catches catches us up with Westeros. Um, was there a point in the text that maybe gave you that thought or did you? No, I really point? don't have any take. I'm just really just taking a guess because, like I said, I haven't yeah. read these chapters in a long time. So. It'll be revealed in the next Daenerys chapter, I'm sure, where it is in relation to everything else as well. But right. um, it just seems odd that he would make such a jump right at the end of a chapter. 
Um, and, and, well, I guess nothing else extraordinary happened. <laughs> That's uh, what I was going to say. So, I guess he didn't yeah. have any other story to tell yeah. for her while she was just traveling. I mean, do we know what what this area is now? Is he still walking? Like, you know, that's kind right. of, that's interesting. Yeah, very much so. What do you think, Kelly? What do you think the time jump means? Uh, I think it catches us up. I think there was, um, we talked about in the first, I brought it up because <laughs> I'm super obsessive <laughs> about spreadsheets. Uh, there's a timeline um, available on a group shared doc that you can look up, but there's um it breaks down where all of these things happened in, in the most logical based on a lot of textual evidence. It's all in the doc. It's amazing. <laughs> and I see the that. Danny Tempter, yeah, the, 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 yeah the, it's so much work. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, Danny's uh, first chapter actually happens probably around the time of the prologue, if not before it, even though it's placed in the third chapter position uh, for narrative purposes. So I think it, right. by the time this chapter happens and we see in the show, there's connections where letters are starting to be sent back and forth from Westeros to Essos that now these events are um, impacting each other. So the, it becomes necessary for the times to sync up a little better, whereas before now they've been pretty isolated. Gotcha. Uh, makes perfect sense. What else do we have on this chapter? I actually brought up two points. How about that? <laughs> Good job. You did. <laughs> All right. Teasing revoked. Yeah. Uh, Jorah is uh, heavily featured here, and, and he's more seeming to be um, Danny's man than Viserys is. And kind of comparing him in, in some ways we see him, him react here, we can see it's very different than how other Westerners are, in that he swore his sword to Viserys, but when Viserys tells him to, you know, kill the, to kill the Dothraki and, and to beat Danny basically he ignores him and we know that's exactly the opposite of what the Kingsguard do when Joffrey tells them to beat a girl um, yeah. does that make us well we know Jorah doesn't really play by the rules does he <laughs> exactly yeah does his time in Essos make him seem is it chicken or the egg you know is he in Essos <laughs> because he isn't the complete Westerosi uh, image of a knight or is he um, has being in Essos made him the not perfect Westerosi image of a of a knight who follows orders. Yeah, and the interesting thing that I find about that also, for me anyway, is like it seems to me that if Jorah, as as we've learned in the the talk between Robert and Ned, if Jorah is working for the Spider and everything, um, then the cons- the concern for the health of the Ceres, who would be the primary heir, uh, would be quite truncated by what his overall mission is, right? I mean, if he can report back to a Robert or to Viserys, or, or I'm sorry, Varys, uh, that Viserys is dead, um, does that hasten his uh, ability to come home? He even says in this chapter, what do you think about most? Home, you know. And do you think it's also maybe a little part on Jorah that he sees the writing on the wall with the series that he sees he's kind of has the madness gene of the Targaryens and obviously the series can't take on a whole Kalisar so you know he's not going to go around killing members of the Kalisar and killing Khaleesi while he's you know with Drogo and stuff I think that could be something too that he even says like 
or Danny even says he's not going to make a very good king. And Jorah mm-hmm. agrees, and Danny says or thinks, you know, I thought that for a while, but you know, she I don't think she wanted to come to terms with it, maybe. But she, you know, she finally realizes, like, you know, Viserys is crazy. Like, he's not going to make a good king. He's never going to make it to the Seven Kingdoms. And I think right. Jorah probably realized that before and got on board. Yeah, that's possible. They're very possible. And, and, and a bit of foreshadowing right there. Daddy's yeah. saying that he's not going to get to the Seven Kingdoms. See, George is telling us what's going to happen. <laughs> is Danny Don't ever even... going to get there? <laughs> and she never says anything about her. If she just said something no. about her, then maybe we would have. We would know. <laughs> Oh, no, that'd be too big of a, a foreshadowing to put in there, probably. Or maybe oh. it's in there and we haven't seen it yet. <laughs> oh, that's a possibility also. Possibility. Maybe it's absence. He's telling us something. Maybe he's writing the story I want. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Maybe. Um, no, I, I actually uh, thought the same thing that you guys were talking about, that the um, his lack of disturbance by his supposed liege king lord here is not showing any signs of being a, a good king. He doesn't seem surprised or disappointed. He doesn't seem bothered at all by it. It should be pretty yeah. telling that we know, I mean, if you were a close enough reader your first time through, I definitely was not and did not put all of this together. I was just, ooh, pretty words. So definitely <laughs> figuring, watching, watching more closely. And uh, you can see that there is, his motivations are pretty clear. And whether, if you want to look into your perspective for this, his concern at betraying these people that he has sworn his sword to could be pretty much, um, he could probably ignore it or, or justify it. Sorry, looking forward to it. Right. Yeah, he could probably justify his, uh, his betrayal of these people that he is protecting by seeing how poor of a ruler he could be. And even if he had believed in him and wanted him to have the Viserys, that is, if he wanted him to have the throne by rights or just by uh, heritage, then, yeah, I think his thing he felt like he could be trying to get him there. I'm not saying this very well. I'm just saying you can see how even if you were Jorah, you can sympathize with his his betrayal and that the guy that he's went to is not very worthy. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, like the secondary character's point of view is a little bit. <laughs> Cause he looks like a bad guy. Is there anything else on Danny? No. Mm, hey, we talked about the magic. That was cool. Oh, and the, the, the egg being black and scarlet. Like her yeah. dragon, but also like the Targaryen, Targaryen colors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Very good. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, that's the jam. Oh. All right. Uh, then let's rank these chapters in the order of preference this week. Uh, Stephanie, we gave you a break last week, right? We're going to start with yep. you this week. Okay, well, first I have Aria just because my love for Serio knows no bounds. And we finally had some happy moments for Aria and family with her getting her water dancing. Um, next, I have Danny because, as I said before, I think her character develops leaps and bounds in this chapter, not just by getting, you know, pregnant, 
uh, by Drogo, but, you know, she stands up to Viserys. She kind of takes on her role as the Khaleesi. She just kind of embraces her new life. Um, And then next I have Tyrion, just for his comic relief and also for his great conversation that he has with Jon. And lastly, I have Ned. uh, Just, it was a little boring compared to the other chapters, but informative. Very good. All right, on. How about you, Kelly? Changing it up, I went in reverse read order this week. <laughs> I really liked the Danny chapter. Um, really, really inspiring. I think this this character and her arc and how strong she really is when you first see her as such a weak victim character. Um, and then Arya, because there is so much love in that scene, and like we don't know. We, and we know that you won't see Catelyn again and, and knowing that these last, <laughs> he's only in this book. So it's very touching when, when you get um, to look back on where these kids came from and what their background was with, with Ned and, and how much of him is in them. I think it shows, and this is just a very intimate scene with father-daughter. And then Tyrion, it was very entertaining because of the threat that was kind of shown and, and <laughs> the ineptitude with which we are about to face this threat very it kind of set the stage a lot more than we've gotten so far for the reality of it and, and a reminder of it and then Ned I think it was just a little bit more of a repeat of the cat stuff that we already got so uh, love Ned but I think that was the the least uh, of the four <laughs> very good I'm going to go Arya number one. I think not only does it tell us a lot about Arya, but it tells us more about Ned than we probably knew before. Um, I'm going to go Danny two, believe it or not. I'm going to go Danny two. It was a very exciting chapter, uh, despite my lack of copious notes regarding that chapter. Uh, I am going to go Tyrion three, uh, because, uh, again, I like Stephanie's the explanation of the humor and everything. Um, I also, again, I just enjoy seeing Tyrion not be the whitewashed Tyrion that uh, he is in the television show. And I'm going to go Eddard 4 because um, when Eddard's alone in his head, I just don't have as much fun. And there we go. Uh, feedback is next. I have this email from John from Amsterdam. Say, just listening to the latest podcast and wanted to share my opinion about the Three-Eyed Crow's instructions to brand. Since my first reread over 15 years ago, EGADS, I developed a, the vague impression that Bran's survival was to some degree a result of the Three-Eyed Crow's intervention. If one takes the old, if you die in your dreams line of thought and applies it to Bran's coma, then instructions to put away that memory could be considered part of this, informa- this intervention. Maybe by pulling Bran's attention away from his fall, he might have kept the brand's mind active enough to engage in healing the body. Whereas dwelling in the fall would create a feedback loop to lead to further physical decline. Um, very good, John. Uh, any thoughts on that email? Oh, I like that a lot. That's a really good explanation. Yeah. yeah. So really in line with it, yeah, what I was thinking, but put much better. <laughs> yeah. Very good. 
And I think that was more addressed to me than it was to you guys. But I yeah. think, I'm glad we put that out there. Glad we put that out there. Mary uh, sent this email. A few weeks ago, you and your guests were speculating about when you thought book six would release. Here's my mm-hmm. two cents worth. I have never thought that book six would be released before the next season. I believe the showrunners are at a point where they don't want any aspect of the show to be spoiled by book readers. And you know that if the book were to be released before next season, Jon Snow's fate and other major plot points would certainly be revealed all over social media. Times are different now with social media than when George's first books were released and he had a smaller audience that he was catering to. We have witnessed releases of George's works for at least the last two Octobers, so I would not be surprised if Book Six was released until next October at the very earliest. In fact, I would not be surprised to see it released until the following October of 2017, or at least after Season 7. That way there would be no spoilers for the show, at least not many. I look at the show and the books as two entirely separate entities and stories, but the main plot points would have to be revealed in the show. So Book 7, and please don't let there be a Book 8, as has been rumored, would likely not be released until after the end of the series, however long HBO wants that to be. My greatest fear of all of this is that George will treat books six and seven as he did books four and five, split them up and only cover some of the characters in each book. So it could be a long time before we have any resolution on John's storyline, for example. Thanks for doing the reread, picking up so much more the third time around. Well, congratulations on your third read, Mary. Appreciate you sending in this email. Um, So she thinks this, she seems to think that the TV show uh, in terms of spoilers, has become more important than George's books. And, and a lot, you know, there's a lot of back and forth about this. I know that even as far as last season, there were a lot of book readers who were worried that the TV show was going to spoil them. Um, so uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting take. Uh, I'm, I don't know what to think. I, I, I mean, it does make sense that an October release would be... Uh, in the in the vein of what he's done before, uh, and given that we're now what we're in October now, we've heard no hint of any further progress. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, you know when we'll see the book, but I mean that's as good a thought as any. Anybody have any thoughts on Mary's email here? It'd be really I'm good not explaining. If, oh, go uh, on, Kelly. The I think I'm on a lag again. Sorry. Uh, I think it'd be really disappointing if the show suddenly became, or not suddenly, but if it had become more sacred than the text and the spoiling of show watchers became a greater offense than spoiling book readers. It's kind of a a disheartening thought. (laughs) Mm, Understood. I mean, after after season five, I'm not sure how the book could or the show could spoil the book because the season five took such, you know, divergent paths from where the book went that it would be pretty, in some people's storylines, like Sansa and Jamie, um, I think it would be very hard to reconcile the book to match up with the show. So I'm not, I'm not really worried about the show spoiling the book. Um, but that's what do you think about that, Kelly? There being a prize <laughs> You said that there is a February release for Clash of Kings. Is there hope? 
Can you repeat what you said? The last part. Sorry. Uh, well, I can't read the link. Oh no! What? what you oh, said there was a February release for Clash of Kings. Um, so, oh. So, right. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. I mean, I mean, I think personally, it it's just a really dicey thing. I don't think that you cannot spoil the major plot points of the overall story as the show goes on for the books, because there's no way that George can catch up and get those major points out. So I, I, I've always seen it as Dave and Dan um, taking a different path, but they're still getting to the same points of major things. Mm-hmm. For instance, who's going to end up sitting on the Iron Throne or will anybody at all? When, when the White Walkers come, who will win or, and how? Um, those kind of things, are, I think, are the show will spoil the books uh, to a certain degree. Um, but uh, the journeys are going to be different, so I think it's how you invest in the characters that makes a, a bigger difference as to whether you think one is more sacred or the other. Uh, I personally would rather have the books before the TV show. Um, that's just my personal preference. I, I would like to see George's take on it because there's so much... If George, there, there's so many other things within the context of these books, which we talk about sometimes in the spoiler section of the show, uh, that I feel that George needs to address for his fans. Um, and I worry that Dave and Dan's interpretations of that will mislead um, some of the more some more of the minutia uh, as far as book readers go. Um, not intentionally, I don't think, but I think that that is a, a casualty that will happen unless George gets a, another book out um, before the series is over, for sure. I I totally agree with that, and I just took a good part to insert this little seed if you guys think this is totally crazy, but the possibility of the show going one way with the ending, maybe taking the more Hollywood ending, of course this calls back my, my favorite theory here, that... Uh, Danny gets back to Westeros and does the, the hero thing. Whereas in the book, if he did a completely different ending saying it, the book comes out after the show, if they are that different based on these small changes that they've started making in three and then bigger in four and now huge in five, that they have just had these different plot points that they value and find that they want to hit in the book or in the show versus what, George is laying the groundwork for that he thinks need to be hit the books. Would you think that that would be totally crazy? Uh, it's a possibility. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds more of a possibility. Especially, like I said, especially with the way season five played out. I think they might go for the big Hollywood ending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And our friend um, Peter from Australia in the chat room says that George R. R. Martin might eat himself to death before he finishes the book. Oh, uh, we don't. You know, George has has gotten pretty mad at people saying stuff about you know he's never going to finish these books. He's going to die before he finishes these books. He's gonna, it is really death. morbid. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't want to hear that if either. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it is a com- it is a common it is a common fan thought. Is like, will George get to finish these? Well. Will uh, book seven of George's or book eight or however many books it takes, will that become his uh, Silmarillion, you know? The, uh, we were talking about it before we started recording, just uh, hopefully his, his 
cameo on Z Nation is not foreshadowing his potential demise. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I am true. Oh, yeah. The, the Starting to give us word descriptions in here. Uh, uh, Ion Throne suggests <laughs> uh, GRM broke his fast at Denny's with a platter of bacon and fried eggs. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, it sounds oh. like a Game of Thrones description, so brief. Yeah, it, it, I was it, just going to say we need about 10 more pages of that description. Yeah, yeah. See. <laughs> the, the bacon uh, lightly fried on one side and blackened on the other, the eggs dripping with. Uh, uh, and, and sprinkled with what I don't know, salt, and, salt. And, <laughs> and ketchup and blah blah. Yeah, and fourteen descriptions of whatever he put on his eggs. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, that's it for the feedback. Let's get to uh, let's get to the ending here. All right, guys, thanks again so much for joining us. A reminder uh, for you first time readers that uh, we're going to take two weeks off from the read, but the next time that we do read will be Brand 4, Eddard 5, John 4, and Eddard 6. We get a double dose of Eddard uh, the next time we get together, which will be in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, the podcast will continue for the next two weeks. I have a pre recorded feedback podcast for you. We will have a Grand Northern Conspiracy podcast for you, but those are for people who have finished all of the books, just like the spoiler section that we'll have after the end music of this. So if you haven't read all of the books, um, take a couple weeks off. Read, read a couple chapters in advance. Uh, have fun, and, and we'll be uh, love, happy to talk to you about these chapters coming up in the near future. In the meantime, I do want to thank uh, our guests this week. Thank you so much first to Stephanie, for joining us once again it's been a pleasure having you on uh and Yay. we hope to have you on again sometime in the future if need be for uh you know the lack of another host or anything you've been fantastic and uh great thoughts and i i really appreciated them you've tolerated my bad thoughts very well much better than <laughs> no <you guys>. uh, <laughs> well i know that kelly you know sometimes she just wants to grow and she mutes herself I'm sure that if there's muting, that she's, uh, you know, that under the muting, if there was recording, that you would hear a lot of groans. But nonetheless, uh, I appreciate your tolerance. It's very good. And we, uh, we want to know how people can talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire. I am at SM Persephone on Twitter. That's S-M-P-E-R-S-E-P-H-O-N-E. All right. Thank you again, Stephanie, so much for joining us. Thank you. And Kelly, at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. And now we know where Underfoot comes from. So were you always running around underneath all of the, all of, like your brother and your, your dad and your mom's feet? Is that how you, too? Is that why you relate? I am, yes. Hmm. I'm constantly in the way. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't mean to imply it like that, but I just was, you know, that's what... <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I, I'm glad you could join us as always. And uh, once again, tell everybody your Twitter handle and uh, spell it for them. So in the time, it's Kelly Underfoot, K-E-L-L-Y-U-N-D-E-R-F-O-O-T. You can tweet me. You can follow me. And I usually just retweet that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I've seen some interesting hair watch tweets and things like that for you Game of Thrones fans. You, That's true. Uh, you, you can, yes. Kelly's, Kelly is constantly <laughs> tweeting something interesting when she's tweeting. 
All right, there we go. And uh, Axel Foley is <laughs> going to tell you how to contact me right now. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. If you haven't read all five of George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire books proper and maybe even some of the supplementary material, uh, then this part isn't for you. We want only the hardcores who have delved through thousands and thousands and thousands of pages looking for that one word that might confirm their theory that your own great joy is, in fact, Septa Lamour. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, before we get to uh, talking about these chapters, guys, I do have a couple of quick uh, spoiler emails that I have to read. This one from the Kindly Boy on Twitter that I promised to read last week but didn't. So sorry, the Kindly Boy on Twitter. Uh, just And they say, just wanted to say in Brand 3, if this isn't the biggest confirmation that Mormont's Raven is Blood Raven working, then I don't know what is. When Bran asks the Three-Eyed Raven from his dream to help him, the Raven says... Got any corn? So, um, Mormont's Raven is Blood Raven, is what he says. I say he's time traveling brand. What do you say, Kelly? I think Blood Raven. I'm pretty sure. Right. Well, I think it's a it's a perfect role position for him to be in with the Lord Commander in the, you know, find out what the people at the Wall are doing. He hears everything. I think. I think it's. it's that's a very highly valued position that a work could uh, could utilize. Understood. I like it. All right. Very good. What do you think, Stephanie? I think it's Blood Raven too. As much as I would love for it to be a time traveling brand, I think it makes sense that it would be Blood Raven. Oh darn it! Me and my brand, <laughs> brand everywhere is getting dashed to bits here, right in the spoiler section. It's brand. Brand, brand's everywhere. Every tree He's that everywhere comes, all the time. Every leaf that ever rustled is brand. Oh, maybe not. Oh, I think I think the ravens are any raven. It would make it so complicated if it could be either brand or blood raven. So anytime it's a raven, I'm thinking I'm thinking blood raven. All right, fair enough. <laughs> How about this email from Lewis who says, "Hi, just listening to the most recent episode where you were discussing the Valerian, where the Valerian knife came from." I always assumed the following passage to have a hint of where it came from. Quote, if you have need of a dagger, take one from the armory. Robert left a hundred when he died. Jerrion gave him a gilded dagger with an ivory grip and a sapphire pommel for a wedding gift. And half, in, half the invoice who came to court tried to curry favor by presenting his grace with jewel-encrusted knives and silver-inlay swords. Quote, Oh, uh, Tyrion smiled. They, they'd have pleased him more if they'd have presented him with their daughters. No doubt, the blade only, the only blade he ever used was the hunting knife he had from John Arryn when he was a boy. Lord Tywin waved a hand, dismissing King Robert and all his knives. Um, I think it was just another knife in Robert's possession, not one that Littlefinger ever even had in his possession, um, that he was gifted by someone or possibly even the hunting knife that Robert Aaron gifted him, although it would appear that it is the only one from his collection he would miss. Um, so uh, that's Lewis's thought about the dagger itself. Any thoughts on that? I'm assuming this is from A Storm of Swords, this quote he gave. I think the fact that it's Valerian that. steel makes it 
more, you know, it stands out more since there's not so many Valerian steel blades. But it could very well be that there's just a surplus of daggers and mm-hmm. that's, I mean. Yeah. yeah, I think we're we're not really all that disappointed into which dagger it is, or, or we're we're just worried we're just kind of disappointed that it just seems like it was all handed off to Joffrey really quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it could have been a lot more satisfying than than it turned out to be. But I, yeah, I think the the general assumed conclusion that Tyrion came to is, is what is generally believed, and that's that. He, Joffrey just went into the armory, grabbed one of the knives that he thought was super wicked looking, and <laughs> assigned assigned it to his assassin for the deed. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, if there was, was he saying that like in contrast to it having actually been um, Littlefinger's dagger? Yeah, it seems to imply to me that he. he uh... Lewis here says, uh, what was it? I think it was just another knife in Robert's possession, not one that Littlefinger ever even had in his possession. Yeah. Yeah. It it is very curious that he immediately claims it, and then in front of, and this is all in front of Varys, that he's telling this outright lie that it was his and he lost it to Tyrion, and that just never seems to, like, doesn't have any proof for that. And, right. he, I mean, pretty suspiciously, he immediately tells Ned to throw the throw it in the river. <laughs> that would be my advice. <laughs> yeah, it, it is It is interesting because it, since we don't believe uh, that, that little, you know, Littlefinger's obviously lying about Tyrion, why not the whole thing be a bold lie? Um, but I, I don't know. i I got to be honest, I never thought about it that hard. I just was disappointed that it was Joffrey that had sent the assassin. That's what was disappointing to me. Yeah, I agree. Maybe, maybe it does work. Yeah, maybe Littlefinger will reveal something else about that somewhere further down the line. Maybe the mystery isn't completely solved yet. Yeah. Um, but I bet it is. (laughs) Uh, What do we have on Eddard, guys? I want to say this. Uh, So Manderly and Glover. Uh, they're mentioned in this book way before we get to Rob even being involved after Ned's death, right? So um, it's interesting to see these character names being dropped, and you think about it takes till book five to get anything really significant about Manderley. It takes till book right. two, two or three to get to anything significant about Glover. Yes. <laughs> can either be viewed as like very frustrating or very uh, satisfying, depending on how well you like your mysteries to be seated and prolonged. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and maybe he was just thinking about, oh, okay, okay, wait a minute. I got to have some guy do this. Wait a minute. What's the name I dropped back here in book one. Right. Okay. That, that one will work. Yeah. I'll, I'll use the Glover. Yeah. I'll use the Glover guy. That made very little sense to me. Cause if you, uh, Paul Hart makes sense because he's in Torn square, which is pretty I feel like there's got to be more bowmen closer than Deepwood Mott, which is so far. It's north of Winterfell. It's north. It's, it's pretty much like the last turf. I think it's, it's as far north as it's a little bit more west. But it's just so far away from Mo Kalen. Why would he send these men in so far away unless they're renowned bowmen? It's the only thing I can think of. Or 
they're trustworthy, like they're close to the Starks for some reason, but you would think the Sirwins are at least closer than maybe they can spare the men. The only things I can think of that would explain it, unless he didn't really have a geographical location figured out yet for where the Glovers are. Right. Yeah. I don't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think Ned's just as bad at geography as I am. I think that's what it is. <laughs> I don't even know what state I'm in half the time. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, what else have we got on Edward, guys? Anything? Uh, does anything ring true to you that book-wise uh, that didn't have hasn't happened on the TV show? Speaking of Bloodraven, yeah, there's pretty good segue there. <laughs> there's a pretty heavy comparison between Bloodraven and Varys as the Master of Whisperers in King's Landing. Um, that was Blood Raven's previous position before he became uh, Brother of the Night's Watch. And he was kind of renowned and feared and almost hated for having this ability to know things that normal men could not. And it was, there as we know, uses little birds. He uses these t- secret tunnels. And we kind of see behind the curtain of his skills. That otherwise, like to Catelyn, is very... And she says in the next chapter how there's no uh, Roderick met uh, the armorer in secret. There's no way he could have heard them. But we know that there are secret passages all throughout the Red Keep that would very likely be able to you know, allow for someone to overhear a very secret conversation. So there's this comparison between how Varys uses the tools at his disposal to seem like this mystical, all-knowing, powerful you know, Master Whisperer's position, whereas Bloodraven actually had warning and he actually had uh, little birds. He had actual little little birds birds finding out information for him, or he was finding out information through them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Love it. Hello. Speaking of that passage through from uh, that little finger leads Ned down, um, I kind of mentioned it. we don't actually see the same passage in the show. So, like I said, it was the same that we do see Santa take later. I know that might have been a spoiler to say that in the show. Feel free to cut anywhere I sound super dumb at. <laughs> I'm spoiling things that I just don't think of. That's all right. Those are easy edits. <laughs> Thank you. They're, they're, few and, they're few and far between. Those are easy edits. <laughs> so, um, yeah, see, yeah, the secret passage and, and then the secret path that he takes Ned down and they climb the stairs and it's super treacherous. And then you see the very real little, you know, granted she's younger, but the way that Sansa here has, has to do the same trek in the, I think it's at night. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Um, and that should have told us right then and there uh, where who Dantos was leading her to, right? Yeah, it would have been more mysterious. It's like, and more of a, a cool catch, even though I think we find out in the same chapter that, it, that she takes them to Littlefinger's, right. or he takes her to Littlefinger's ship. Yeah. But if you pop that, you might have uh, realized yeah, that you, before. You had, a, you had a few pages of, uh, I figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> and then a quick confirmation of that, so that you can grin and tell everybody, I knew that. And they'll all go, yeah, right, it's at the end of the chapter. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't win with that one, but it's you will know if you You'll caught know. it. You will That's know if you caught that. Exactly. That's the important <laughs> thing. Uh, Stephanie, do you have anything on Edward? 
just this thought just came to me as you got, as we were talking, um, and you know it might be a little far off since we haven't seen it in the show, but since we're in the spoiler section uh, with la- our friend Lady Stoneheart, um, and you know they had Cat and Eddard had a lovely goodbye this chapter, you know, although it was the last time they'll ever see each other, you know they showed how much they loved each other and how much they care for their kids and everything. What do you think, Ed, being the honorable man he is, or Ned, um, what do you think he would think about Lady Stoneheart and her revenge mission? Uh, I don't know if he'd be horrified about her revenge mission. I mean, obviously, that wouldn't fit with the way we see Ned, but I think he would just be more horrified by the unnaturalness of that. Yeah. You You know, the unnaturalness of her being alive at all. And, uh, you know, we, we find out that Nymeria was sent away by Arya, and as, as was mentioned, I guess, in a prior, prior podcast, probably, was the fact that if Nymeria hadn't been sent away, uh, would Lady Stoneheart have ever been, have ever right. happened, right? Yeah. yeah. Would she have been pulled out of the water? Or... Right. I just thought it was something interesting to think about since we had such a nice, like, moment of them you know, parting ways, but then, right. you know, yeah. she comes Absolutely. back as a non-living creature that is so horrifying that, you know, what would he think about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Kelly, what do you think? Well, what would Ned think of Cat- of uh, Lady Stoneheart? I think he loved her and loves her so much that he would more feel hatred or anger, at least for the people who made her life end in that way such that she came back with all of this vengeance in her heart. Because we do know like mm. in, the, in the throne room when he's giving um, the Brotherhood Without Banners orders to leave, it, he kind of condone, or condemns the, uh, the guys coming asking, let us bring, let us, you know, treat the Lancers the same way that they treated us. And Ned's like, I thought you came here for justice. That's revenge. So he does make a very hard line distinction between justice and revenge, and he would be very disapproving of what Callan's doing, but I, I'm pretty sure he would put the blame more at the feet of the the, the people and who, brave. Yeah. Yeah. All the betrayals. He's he's got a he's got a soft spot. It's hard for Cat. I think he, he wouldn't I think he'd mourn it and I think he'd be it would make him very sad. I don't think he would necessarily abhor it or you know, kind of curse her or whatever something right. like that for, for yeah. doing what she's doing. Yeah. yeah. I can see him being pretty mad at the Brotherhood Without Banners for bringing her back. That's for what sure. I was going to say. I think he'd be more mad, like, I mean, he'd obviously be upset with the way, you know, the Boltons betrayed her and everything, but I think he'd be also mad at, yeah, the Brotherhood for turning her into that. But then, since she's in that position, do you think he would say, well, Milady, use that position to help our children, help her to right, right to the wrongs that have been done to us? Or do you think he would see it more as a horror that she was going through and wish it to end for her than to use the, the gift of real life that she's been given? Can she think of anything except vengeance? It would be interesting if she did come across Nymeria again and somehow yeah. that brought her back to her heart and, and, and yeah. more on the path of justice than than vengeance. Yeah, because I'm not so, I think she's so devoid of, I guess, feeling 
except for hatred and revenge, I'm not sure if she would recognize, you know, I mean, she might recognize her children, you know, like in her heart, as Kelly said, but I'm not sure if she would be able to do good, you know, do good works after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All I know is that Lady Stoneheart scares the crap out of me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, I think she's exciting. She's, she's just full of potential for plot yeah. and, and drama. <laughs> Do we have anything else on Eddard? Little Rhaegar, Liana, John, Barry, and that their stance of pleading as Liana had pleaded once. And I, as much as it, I just kind of latch on to anything where Liana's mentioned, it does yeah. qu- draw me to question, though. Like, I don't recall Sansa pleading in a way that is similar to what we believe Liana pleaded, unless it was just don't kill this innocent creature and John or a <laughs> maybe not you know lady didn't do anything John didn't do anything they're not guilty don't have them killed the hmm. closest stretch I could make of that yeah. or if it was just a, a female that he loved from his family pleading and that was the only connection yeah. maybe that's it maybe that is it I don't mm-hmm. I don't know I, I, w- I would have a hard time um, you know I could definitely see him being moved by uh, Liana saying, you know, we can't, we can't let John die. Please take him back with you. What have you like that? Um, just the same way as, as son was saying, we can't have lady die. Just send her back to Winterfell or, or something of a similar nature. Right. Um, but, um, I don't know if that directly speaks to R plus L equals J or not, but, um, except in the fact, like you mentioned, that it could be that the pleading is similar. I don't know what he thinks, Stephanie. I, I, since Kelly brought it up, I think it's more pleading, you know, Liana was saying, please, promise me, please, and so for him to take John, and maybe Sansa was just saying, you know, please, please, like, don't kill the direwolf, like, pleading for life, Liana's pleading for the life of John, Sansa's pleading for the life of Lady, that's kind yeah. of the parallel that I could draw, because, you know, they're both women that he lo- that Ned loves and they're both pleading for him to save something that they love. Uh, yeah. And it could just be that Liana is so heavy on his mind with this being the first time he's gone south probably since the rebellion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Anything anything similar will just have that come up in his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh anything else on editor? Can we move on to Tyrion? No. All right, uh, Tyrion. Here's here's my one note for the Tyrion. Uh, Mormont calls Bowen Marsh out as being no better than Alistair Thorne. Does this change your perspective on the final John chapter in dance? <laughs> oh. <laughs> do you have the Do you know the full quote, or is he comparing him in terms of no better of a leader? I'm trying to find where you're pulling this. I have to get on the internet. I can't do that right. I'm, all my internet is tied up in Skype right now. That's fair. Yeah, that's important. I, I can find it. <laughs> but no, that's totally. Uh, that's an intriguing dark, thought. I'm thinking comparison. about it. <laughs> a dark comparison. <laughs> um. 
It's storming here, so my oh, internet is not tied up in Skype. It's tied up in, in storm. half working. Yes. <laughs> I found it, yeah. Um, he's, ta- he's bemoaning the fact that he's so old and he's going to have to find a, a replacement for the Night's Watch commander. Who am I to send searching after Benjen? Is he talking to you? Um, in two years, I will be 70, too old and too weary for the burden I bear. Yet if I set it down, who will pick it up? Alistair Thorne, Bowen Marsh. I would have to be as blind as Mr. Eamon not to see what they are. <laughs> yes. So does that change your perspective on the last John chapter in dance? Was, I mean, not that George was planning it at any time like this, but was he showing us who, who Bowen Marsh truly is uh, this early on in the, se- in the series? I would definitely have to say that when he had to decide who to start the assassination attempt or the assassination on John, he definitely picked the right person who had all of the characteristics that had been seated back all the way back this far that it would be believable. Right, right. Well, that and, you know, they make such a note of now, you know, the Night's Watch is just full of criminals and people, old people and stuff. So it's not that much of a stretch, you know, I'm not, I can't remember Bowen Marsh's background, but, or if we have any background on him, but, you know, if he was a hardened criminal that sent to the wall, it's not that much of a stretch, but it is very, it's it's intriguing now to see if George mm-hmm. had, pl- not, or, you know, planned it, but. Well, and let me put it to me. you in, in this way, because it is in the context of who would be a, a good leader. Um, right. Think of how many times Bowen Marsh went up against John and his points? Does it make you think that even if sometimes you didn't always quite see the logic of John's decisions, that I mean, obviously they were better than anything Bowen Marsh or Alistair Thorne could have made. Yeah, I think that they were all that they were similarly um, thought through their filter as and Mormont describes them as tired old men. And all the decisions John was making, they were incapable of, of comprehending the value of them because of just their experience and knowing mm-hmm. what they know. Very good. Very good. What else we got on Tyrion? Anything? I, you know, I know I'm going to go with a Matt, as Matt calls them, crackpot theories, but I still wish that, uh, although Tyrion just says it was like on a whim that he wanted to go to the wall, I'm hoping that it was just some kind of magic or some intrigue besides his scholarly and his mind to pull him to the wall to go look up there so he could go talk to John. I don't know. That's just my crackpot theory. I just wish he was magical. <laughs> I I embrace the crackpot. I don't agree with you on this one, but I embrace it. Go with it. That's perfectly okay. cool with me. <laughs> the, the him going on top of the wall is, is less of the crackpot, uh, he's being drawn to John moment. And I think it's more the, he had to choose to go east or west. And yes, it's 50-50, but he does choose to go west. And that's the exact direction that took him into run into John. And it could be right. any reason for that, whether it's just their camaraderie is a bond, their um, possible Targaryen heritage is a bond. <laughs> right. It's, or, does, you know, it does I know. more to fate. Yeah, I was going to say fate, and I know Matt's a big fan of Lost, as am I, the whole fate argument. <laughs> <laughs> the wall has a plan. The wall, the wall has, has a plan. plan. Like the island. <laughs> oh, my God. 
The magic has a plan, people. The magic has a plan, for sure. The magic does have a plan. Yeah, I agree. Anything else on Tyrion, guys? Uh, a very endearing moment with Mormont when he looks at his, his raven, and after all of this, beseeching Tyrion to send help, and we you know how Mormont dies, and, and he does look over at the raven, and, and we know in the... Well, he's not really in the show, but the Raven keeps playing this role in the um, at Castle Black afterwards, and he he seems to have this bond with him. And he looks at it, and after he seems so distraught, and then it makes him smile. And there's this connection with the Raven that he has. And if it's anything mm-hmm. more than a simple pet kind of relationship, I don't know, but um, it did make it stand out as something important. This, this Raven with him seems mm-hmm. special. That is concrete proof. It has to be brand because Mormont likes kids, right? He likes little kids. <laughs> you know, he's feeling, he's feeling, it's got to be brand. Brand, brand everywhere. No. Uh, I, I like it, Kelly. I like that very much. Very cool. Um, anything else on Tyrion? Stupid foreshadowing at the end of the chapter. If, uh, if Benjamin doesn't come back, I'm going to go look for him. Yep. <laughs> Yep, that's one that happens. We could have discussed that in the spoiler-free part, actually. Uh, yeah. Do you think so? Yeah, the cold him coming back thing. Yeah, I guess that is just as easily. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's in the television show, so. Yeah, I always wonder about that because there's so much more evidence in in Lady Stoneheart being brought back and posted. Not to seen this one off with Dondarrion. I'm always unsure. Gotcha. <laughs> right, that that I question not that Sansa's. <laughs> Not in Winterfell, sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about uh, Arya, where Harwin is mentioned so much, actually in all of the King's Landing chapters. Uh, we keep getting the mention of, of Harwin, but it, the one in the Arya chapter especially hit me uh, because, you know, later on, he I guess he ends up going with Dondarrion's crew and, be, and uh, to find... Uh, the mountain, and then he ends up uh, being with the Brotherhood Without Banners and ends up being the one that finds Arya, more or less, at the end, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So. A very satisfying reconnection there, and, and it does seem that she is relieved because he's a familiar face, but I think she still holds on to this uh, this grudge that she's developed in this chapter towards uh, him and uh, the other mm. Yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, here, here's one of the, here's one of the R plus L equals J things that I think that I, I kind of glammed onto in the Aria chapter as well, Kelly. Um, even the lie was not without honor. Um, so it appears to me that this is proof that Ned is not so absolute about whether you lie or not, but whether the lie has honor or not. And I wonder if that's his own kind of way of justification about keeping his secret about Jon Snow. Definitely. I, I think yep. he he has experienced firsthand that uh, distinction and that fine line. Um, and hopefully, you know, he's not just saying that to make himself feel better. Hopefully he truly believes it. Because <laughs> he's teaching it to his daughter here that a lie, even a lie can still be honorable. Right. Exactly. I completely agree. Right on. Uh, Stephanie, you got anything on Arya? 
<sighs> no, just, you know, about her Nymeria, and then we've already talked about, you know, what if Nymeria wasn't the one to find Catelyn, and what if Sansa was the one who was able to ward. I still think those are exciting things to talk about, but we already did that, so. <laughs> okay. All right. Kelly, how about you? Yeah, I think that my spoiler bit was, was the, the Sansa um, possibly meeting Nymeria and the Riverlands. It'd be very exciting. Um, no, that was my only note so far. You know, so that you do have like the serial uh, conspiracies, but we can talk about that later. No, I I like the serial conspiracy thing uh, because of describing you being as bald with a great beak of a nose. And it seems to me that uh, we all think Jock and Hagar is the man who kills Pate in Feast in in the beginning chapter of Feast, right? Yep. Uh, And uh, it's it's amazing how all the nose descriptions uh, seem to line up with Jock and Hagar quite often, except for, uh, what is it, Rugar with Varys? Is that right? Yeah, but then we also know that, yeah, and that's a distinctive costume he puts on. So he, right. since this mm. is his real face, it could be telling that it is a distinctive feature. Right. So I, I do, do people use this as part of the evidence about Jock and Hagar? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, and Cyril Farrell being one and the same. What do you think about that, uh, Stephanie? be my first chance to ask you that. I think it's actually, especially with the descriptions, I think it's valid. Um, I don't think it'll ever come to fruition in the book, or I mean, in the show, I mean. But I, you know, the, he he uses, George uses such specific descriptions for people. Um, you know, just like the whole theory with Shira Seastar and Melisandre, they both have the heart-shaped face. Well, I think, what do they describe him as, a hook nose? I'm not really, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but yeah. I think it would be... I think it would make everyone happy if Jockin was serial. Or if serial was just alive, period. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Anything else on Arya, guys? No. 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 Spoiler. Uh, what about Daenerys? Anything there? Mm. I have nothing. <laughs> Did, um, no, I'm shocked. <laughs> The uh, Varys Illyrio conspiracy is coming into play a little bit here with Jorah's apathy. I think that's why I was fumbling when I was talking about it just now. I was trying not to be spoilery, but he, he's got the he's, um, Jorah's apathy with his role in the um, safety of the king, of, of his supposed king that he's, he's sworn to here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's mostly because it, he was sent there to... Uh, it plays a lot into the Varys Illyrio uh, conspiracy, and I don't think I have enough prepared to, to explain it. And this is just a point of evidence used for it, so I'll, I'll put more together for the next time and another piece of ex- evidence pops up, I can explain it better. All right. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about that dream real quick, though. Um, do you think... Here's what I thought when I read it this time. Um, because it does seem to be her most prized dragon... Um, yeah, or it seems, by description, it seems very similar to be her most prized dragon. Um, could George have taken the imagery from this dream and put it into the pit in Marine, where uh, 
So what? What is it? Drogon. Dro- yeah, where Drogon breathes fire at Danny as she's standing off to protect the troops or protect the people. Is it says like, or is it more of a metaphorical transformation kind of thing? I thought of it more as a metaphorical transformation because she says like it was cleansing and you know it was you know cleansing her spirit and we know that when she comes out of the funeral pyre with all her dragons she seems to be you know a different person with her three dragons so it did cleanse her but it would be interesting if it was a foretell foreshadowing of well, the marine pits and and the reason why I say this is because doesn't it take that moment for Danny to kind of refine herself in dance, where she gets on the dragon, and yeah. she rides, and she flies. So uh, that's what I, if it was almost kind of metaphoric in the sense of her cleansing herself of the, of the whole marine of the Marinese knot, so to speak. Of the just, marine, de- yeah, yeah. Because then, what I mean, happens after she leaves Marine? She gets reunited with the the Kalisar. So she's kind of going back to where it first started. Yeah. Which really brings true. up the prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that George had that in mind when he wrote this. Movie. No. I'm just wondering if he decided to use it in a literal sense uh, in dance is all I'm thinking. It is interesting to consider that she has never actually seen a real dragon. And then all of this, these images that she gets are the true descriptions that we do get later. And that's very um, telling, I think, of her, her heritage coming through or of this being somehow a vision given to her, these dragon dreams. So that experience in the dragon pit later does, I think, verify that these are visions instead of just dreams because it is so accurate with no reason. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what else do we have on Daenerys? I think I, I mentioned it, and I probably shouldn't have in the non-spoiler section, the, the kite. Um, and I, in turn, just mentioned it, so it's awesome. Yeah, the um, the kite is the one sending her these, these dreams through some sort of glass candle, the way she does in the... I don't think in the show she visits her. I need to rewatch. She, I don't think she visits her. Uh, Kaif doesn't visit Danny. No, she only encounters her, I think, in, in Karth is the only place in this show. Gotcha. And then, yeah, Jorah comes up on her at some point. And I'm sorry, to, sorry to confuse those and make your editing job difficult. But, like I said, those are few and far between and easy cuts. Don't worry. Thank you, thank you. Um, but, yeah, so here is more appropriate to discuss that and that <clears throat> Kaif uh, is constantly reminding her of remember who you are and t- helping her presumably, to, uh, on her path. And we don't know if it's the way she um, was Danny's best interest at heart or some other way, but we do know that glass candles are relighting even in the West, and this chapter gave us some indications that the magic never actually left the East. So there is a possibility that these magic that Kaif is using have been here all along, not just after the dragons were born, so she could be um, preparing Danny or uh, manipulating Danny by giving her these these dragon dreams. Wait a minute. Are you saying that that Kate is Marwin is <laughs> and Benjamin is oh is uh, 
Cirilla Sand. That's the one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kaita Cirilla, yeah. Yeah, there we go. No. <laughs> now, I think that's a great thought, though, actually, Kelly. I, I, I like the, especially the fact that, um, you know, it appears that the magic is, at least not all of the magic has left the world at all, um, and that it is still being accessed. Because I liken the White Walkers to being magical, and there they are in the prologue. And I know we've had discussions before about where does it start? Uh, but I think the best thing that that you point out here is that maybe it just never ended, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. I think it's interesting if anyone is interested in looking up the um, – the Grand Maester conspiracy and the, the Citadel conspiracy, some, something like that, um, it has theories on why there is no more magic in the West and that the actual institution-driven decimation of magic and dragons. And, and it's very interesting oh. and how it plays Actually, into I haven't heard that one. Magic. It's out there. It's out there. I haven't read it uh, completely either myself, but it's definitely out there. It's something we'll cover in one of the theory casts, I'm sure. But basically what Kelly is saying is that the Maesters are the blue book in terms of UFO investigation of today's world, right? <laughs> wow. Oh, that was a nerdy pull, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty good with, you know, I watch enough History Channel to know those things. Excellent, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Excellent. Uh, what else we got on this chapter? I hope that's it. Fine. Are we done? Are we done? Are we done? I think we're done. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, once again, uh, Stephanie is with us. Stephanie, please tell people how to follow you on Twitter. Uh, SM Persephone. S-M-P-E-R-S-E phone. And Kelly is with us also. Kelly, tell people how they can follow you on Twitter. Um, yeah, Kelly Underfoot. Um, probably my goal is to... Is to uh, Tweet something of of interest in the next week or two. I will be in LA, so maybe there'll be a cool picture or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> and I'm Matt, and I'm always here, and I'm always at Winterfell Pod. That's winter, and then fell, and then pod. That's how I spell, <laughs> folks. That's how I spell. That's how I roll. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks regarding the read. We'll see you next week with the theory feedback cast. Bye. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.